This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome to another edition, actually the 49th class. Class 49, we have 49. We class with Carr, Dr. Greg Carr. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let me morning. Say, shout out to the Netherlands. We got uh, Netherlands, Trinidad, Denmark, Switzerland. Wow. Representing in the in the chat, I was watching coming in, folk in here since 10, 10 a.m. this morning. Uh, <laughs> man, we look very happy that everybody is here. In fact, my man, Wade Muhammad from London, the brother who did the Malcolm X Made in America comics, he sent me a box. I opened the box. He emailed me, I remember, and it was this. I said, man, this is, I don't have no bus around. This is a Malcolm X. Oh, and it's perfect. Isn't that nice? Oh, no. no. They did. The they king statue don't look like Martin Luther King. My fraternity, I, I'm not going to dog the brothers because I'm a, I'm a proud member of Alpha Alpha. But, you know, I think, that, are there no black sculptors? They picked they pick the Chinese sculptor to, to make the Dr. King statue. And, and I understand it from the sense that there is a kind of monumental style that emerged out of China. So, that that king statue does look like it will come out of the rock, walk over the Potomac, uh, um, the the basin there, and whip uh, Thomas Jefferson's ass. But if you're looking for somebody look just like Dr. King, yeah, nah, yeah, you, you could yeah. find a sister who. In fact, we're gonna talk about a sister sculpture today. I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> Listen, I'm I'm at uh, I'm at, but I just I wanted to just say first of all, thank you everyone who's here. I appreciate uh, the time that people put in on a Saturday and whenever you watch this, you know, um, yes. to, to commit a couple of hours to uh, the community and also to yourself is is all we should be doing right now. So I'm just grateful that more and more people are plugging into this. And I'm so grateful for you and just answering the call every single week and beyond because we do stuff even during the week because we're putting some stuff together uh, to make sure that history is uh, immutable. Like we we this this is the time to put those tracks down. That will be ripped up. Um, this week, I honored Annie Malone on my oh. show, Annie Turnbull, because, you know, the story has been told wrong about her. And then they had a whole ass miniseries that painted her as a color, you know, color struck. It was like, this is a lie. So we tell the truth. And this morning I got up, I got a call from a buddy of mine, Michael Davis. Great cartoonist, great, brilliant genius. Uh, DC did a whole tribute to Black history, you know, on their... DC Comics on it since you just talked about of course, that. Of course, yes. And they, uh, you know, they honored Trevor uh, Van Eaton. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. The, the brother that um, imagined Black Lightning, Damian Scott, Kyle Baker, and of course Dennis Cowan and Dwayne McDuffie, the two brothers that started Milestone. But there were three brothers that started Milestone, and one of them I met at the Milestone press conference like a hundred years ago, right? Because Motown, Motown created this comic book. Uh, you know, uh, in, industry, and they had a press conference at one of their restaurants in D in Manhattan, and I met Michael Davis there, and we ended up connecting because he was doing things in the community with young brothers and, and kids, teaching them how to draw and stuff. So I did a whole story on him in the New York Daily News. We became friends. He imagined Static Shock. They left him off of this thing. DC left him off. They erased him from history, and I was like, not on my watch. No, Michael Davis's name. That's right. It, you will give him credit for Static Shock because Static Shock, he wrote in honor of his mother who was distraught over losing her daughter. And it was his ode to her. And he just recently lost his mom. So it means something 
That right. status talk means something and to give it credit to other people. We can't do that. So this is why it's important that we do the thing that we're doing every Saturday and that you uh are the leader of this so thank no, no 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 we are listen we are shoulder to shoulder and as you say that the ranks expand every week and in between the saturdays and i was uh, and, and hey i was telling professor hunter between last saturday and today as i'm tuning in and listening to hear about not only annie uh turnbull who is of course annie turnbull is malone is one of uh one of Professor Hunter's uh, spirit spirit guides, ancestors. She always talking about her, but then to bring for her to bring for you to bring that to the airwaves, and not only that, but Garrett Morgan, and to expand the expanse on Garrett Morgan. It was just interesting hearing y'all talk about back and forth. You know what may or may not be known, and then Re- Rebecca Crumpler has has slid even in black circles. I mean, when when um, Michael Logan assisted Rayford Logan in doing the Dictionary of American Negro Biography, which I, I, I still hold very near and dear, you know, it was published many years ago because many of the little biographies that are written in that one single volume are written by people who knew these folk. She's not in there. And you would think that, you know, these master historians who, who you know, particularly uh, Rayford Logan, who occupied the same time, saying, wow. Because even uh, even the great Montague Cobb, who had a PhD and an MD and was a historian of science, very important brother, uh, he has entries in the Dictionary of American Negro Biography. And I say, wow, but you don't have Rebecca Crumpler. So I, I'm saying I'd say just very quickly, not only thank you, but thank you is not a big enough phrase. You know, Dobali, I guess the Yoruba would say, we would just like to say, you know, give ultimate respect. But ultimately, these ancestors are have have been awakened again every generation has to write its own narrative to recover its own memory but what you're doing is showing us how you're displacing the technology in a sense and making it what it has to be which is a tool not the center but the tool you're doing in another generation now and people are listening i'm listening i'm getting inspired we're reinforcing and that's the work I mean, that is the way. Inspiration came from you when you said it's our all collective responsibility to fill in these blanks. You know, I'm sure it wasn't insidious to leave Rebecca Lee Crumpler out. Oh, no. Not it, at all. It was an oversight, right? But it's our responsibility to say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Somebody needs to be here. And for me, it's like, all right, these are breadcrumbs. Follow it. Because as I'm going down these pathways, I'm finding new people. I'm discovering new people. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Who was the first to do this? And let me go back. And, and as we start to fill in the blanks of the erasure, because this is really what this history thing is all about. They erased us on purpose to make to render us powerless. That's right. And then we and then we allowed ourselves to forget what we had done. And so everybody watching, like there are new people this week who weren't here last week. There are folks who are going back. If you go back through, find the conversation that we had about Whitney Young whose father was the principal of the school in Kentucky. And Karen, when you started talking about Kentucky, you kept bringing it back to Kentucky. You know, a lot of my Kentucky stuff is in storage, but I did have these two volumes out, A History of Blacks in Kentucky. And I said, you're going to make me go back. And, and, and I started remembering Rufus Atwood, um, the great Horace Tate, who got who was the first black to get a PhD at the University of Kentucky, but was the head of the Georgia Teachers and Educators Association, which all loops in. In fact, but I'm saying that to say that when you put a figure like Rebecca Crumpler back in our memory, it she is a, a thread in a fabric. 
people talk about America as this gorgeous mosaic and this fabric. Okay, we're going to take that metaphor just for now and set it aside because we have our own fabric. And when you weave that sister in through the history of New England and a school that opened and then closed very quickly, she becomes part of a thread that's also included with a brother like Martin Delaney, Freddie Douglass's friend who went to Harvard Medical School until the medical students at Harvard went to the dean of Harvard Medical School and said either he goes or we go, which is why Delaney had to leave the, the, the field of practice in medicine. Of course, he goes back to Pittsburgh, apprentices under a doctor, which you kind of bring up in the Rebecca Crumpler thread. I mean, I have to learn, you know, and, and often, particularly for our sisters, well, of course, for our sisters, the, 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 the Appalachian nurse, which you so brilliantly, and if y'all haven't, you know, seen it or you're not subscribed to Sirius XM, Sirius XM, go to the channel and look at that, look at all of them. But, you know, the way that you expand our concept of science and technology to incorporate the ways that we apprenticed in the healing arts. And you even, you even, you know, you, 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 you actually weave it in with Annie Turnbull. So, I mean, Annie Turnbull Malone, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because these are all threads in a, in a tight garment in, in this beautiful garment of fabric of black life that overflows the boundaries of any one country. And so in you doing that, it's allowing us to breathe, to recover. And once we do that, we do what we want. We're not going to debate. We could debate that. But but without that memory, we're figments of other people's imaginations. And, and let me tell you, the, you keep evoking the ancestors, which I didn't imagine until I started talking with you, how, how powerful they sit in our lives when we open ourselves up to them. So yesterday I did um, Hinton, Dr. Hinton. Yes. <laughs> right. I haven't posted that video yet, but as I'm, you know, and I did it because, you know, we're in the midst of this vaccine talk and all of this and everybody yeah. black is like syphilis, syphilis, you know, the syphilis experience, Tuskegee, Tuskegee. Yes. And most people didn't know that the person that found how to test for syphilis was a black man. My to God. this day, the, the methodology used to test people for syphilis was founded by a black man who went to Harvard, who graduated from Harvard again, that Boston connection. <laughs> As an experiment, they let him in, you know, they let him in Harvard and, and they, they wouldn't let him become a surgeon. So they stuck him in a lab. Huh. In the lab, he had to work, do autopsies on people that uh, had syphilis and came up with a way to test for it. Right. That's crazy. They pulled a Vivian Thomas on him. And, and I had a call. Your expertise, but we can't give you the title because we don't. We ain't gonna mess up our, our thing. Right. You had a caller did what? I'm sorry. What'd you say? No, no. William Augustus um, Hinton. A caller called up who's in the medical field and said, "All this time they did not know that Augustus Hinton, the Hinton uh, test, they didn't know it was a black man. <laughs> this is a black person. So you know, the work is important, and I didn't even know the connection until I started. And then I went ran into Grenier as I'm. As I'm going down this this rabbit hole, because I'm like, wait, if if Carter G. Woodson and W. V. Du Bois graduated with PhDs, there was a black person that graduated first as with a with a regular degree as an experiment, you know, because of course they thought our brains were too small to, so they just let a black person in, and then he rocked it. Bye so, bye. you know, these Whoa, wait, what you're talking about, you you're know, looking at. Uh... Is it Richard Greener? No, Richard Greener. Yeah, Greener, Greener. I'm sorry, I no, 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 Greener. Yeah, I know you graduated from the law school, but you know what's funny? And see again, this is why I'm glad everybody, and we're all glad everybody is here, and more and more people are coming on Saturdays. If you go back through, look at the conversation we had about Dorothy Porter Wesley, Richard Greener's daughter, 
Bell DaCosta Green was the librarian for J.P. Morgan. There's a book called An Illuminated Life. In fact, we got to do her, in fact, because her father, Richard Greener, that you're mentioning, who was eventually became the dean of, uh, of, of Howard Law School, actually. Greener is one of the many uh, people who is incorporated in William J. Simmons. I'm pointing like I could go over and get it. His 1887 book, Men of Mark. And uh, that book was republished by Johnson Publishing Company, Mr. Johnson, John H. Johnson, which, which is going to be important today as we talk about Black History Month. But for you to go back and recover Greener, that opens up, like you said, another universe of connections. Richard Greener, who was in Washington, D.C., uh, Richard Greener, who, you know, with his wife and then they divorced, they're out of South Carolina. And the, 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 the Greener disappears from his family. And the daughter goes, uh, Belle DaCosta changes her name. In fact, the mother, the family changed their name from Greener to Green. She then passes for something that we might call now a person of color, meaning a non-white. But she was always vague and ambiguous about, oh, am I black? Am I not black? And Belle DaCosta Green gave her a kind of Portuguese, Latin gloss, this kind of thing. She traveled through Europe. We, we, we kind of are beginning to know. And I started to look. I had a couple of the Arturo Schomburg books out the other day, uh, the great Afro Puerto Rican book collector. But Bell de Costa Green is in many ways a contemporary of him and his and precedes him. Uh, and they travel, they travel, she travels collecting books. And then JP Morgan makes her the librarian for the JP Morgan uh, library. And those of you who are in the New York area, if you've ever been to JP Morgan's library, uh, I went the first time I went is when they had the Magna Carta on display there. Remember, they had that, that, uh, that volcano years ago, a few years ago, and it like blacked out Europe and shut down all the flights. And I got up there just, I got up there because they extended the Magna Carta being there. They were going to send it back to England and, and but they had to delay it. So let me get up there, let me get up there. And while I was in there, I'm looking at the Magna Carta and they got these Gutenberg Bibles. You know, the history of Europe is the history of really colonizing the way we even think about scholarship and knowledge. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to see it. And uh, that was actually around the same time the New York Historical Society had the draft of the 13th Amendment on display, um, which was the one that Lincoln signed before he you know, got his brains blown out. But, you know, I said, let me get up here to the Morgan Library and then I'll go by the New York Historical Society because I like to see these documents. And for me, as a person of African descent, to see a Magna Carta and there's one here in Washington, D.C., uh, the guy who gives all the money to everything, who gave money to fix the Washington Monument, gave money to the National Archives. David Rubenstein, you know, has uh, done He made his money with the Carlisle Group, for those of you who want to follow that breadcrumb. But at any rate, uh, so I've seen a Magna Carta since, but I'd never seen one before. So let me go down here. And, and, I, and as that person of African descent, I'm saying I'm looking at a document that talks about the rights of individuals over and above the rights of any monarch, which is what the argument they were having around Magna Carta in the 13th century in England. And then I'm looking at the 13th Amendment, which, you know, legal historians, students of American history would argue, including those who started the 1776 commission, would argue is, is a natural extension of the arguments in Magna Carta to elevate even beyond the idea of rights of individuals, which in Magna Carta, of course, is the landed gentry, still the elites, 
uh, you ain't worried about the surfs so much. But then, you know, in America, the experiment continues. And you, you, by then you've read through Locke, uh, Rousseau in, 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 in France, and you, you, you're just zeroing in on these fundamental rights, the rights of property, the rights of ownership, this kind of thing, kind of thing that got us in trouble. But as a person of African descent, I'm looking at this one document from 13th century. I'm looking at this other document from the mid 19th century, and I'm realizing two things. Number one, I, I was not part of this conversation. And number two, we have not grappled with the implications of shrinking our worldview to assume that this little handful of white people across time and space who didn't know each other, but who narrate in the present each other as if they did know each other as part of some kind of intergenerational chain. We don't, we have shrunk our worldview so deeply, so, 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 so much that we imagined that they were the only ones in the world who grappled with these issues of how to live in a society and that they were the ones who came up with the best ones simply because they had the guns and the will and the damn audacity to go and basically fire on the rest of the world when the rest of the world wasn't expecting to be fired upon. And that's a great irony because it, 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 it makes it impossible, in fact, unthinkable for us to conceive of examples of models that do two things. I'll say the second one first, because it's probably the one we think about most. It makes it impossible for us to imagine models that have us as the founders of the ideas. And I mean, non-whites generally, and then African people in particular as the oldest people on the planet. And then first, that was the second thing. First, it makes it virtually impossible for us to recognize the ways that we move through the world right now that come not from the Magna Carta, not from the Declaration of Independence, not from the 13th Amendment or the Emancipation Proclamation or any of the civil rights legislation, but the ways that come from the things we have handed down through time and space, the thing that animates the mind of a Rebecca Crumpler, the thing that animates the mind of a Garrett Morgan, the thing that animate, animates the mind of an Annie Malone, so that those things aren't things they learn from outside their community. They're things they learn inside their community that they then uh, used as the foundation to absorb other experiences. But we have, in not remembering, robbed ourselves even of the capacity in many ways of imagining them as founders, imagining their ancestors as the foundations, and imagining ourselves as continuing to practice many of those ways of knowing, ways of being in the world. And so, yeah, I mean, when you mentioned Richard Greener, and this is why, you know, I'll start with that. Our, our work, our collective work, work that everybody is doing every week when folks come in and drop stuff in social media or respond or have conversations like we had last week. Every name is a community. The name is important. What's more important is the community that produced them, that they embraced, that embraced them. And every time we do that, drop a breadcrumb, as you say. That leads us to the real cachet, the real storehouse of knowledge. So just that, just that mention of Richard Greener. <laughs> oh, by the way, Richard Greener was the one who, who led the commission to raise the money for Grant's tomb. I mean, because black folks said Grant was the general in the war that got us out this mess. With, we got ourselves out. But Grant was the general when, it, when the thing stopped. Let's raise some money for him. So who's buried in Grant's tomb? Grant and his wife. But who raised the money? Richard Greener was the head of the committee. A black man. Mm -hmm. All right. 
uh, last week, first of all, I just want to just tell you how full I am. The brother that came in from from Great Britain, from yes. London, that filled in some blank. You know, and again, our, our our lack of knowledge. I keep asking these questions of my students because the misinformation, the miseducation of the Negro is the miseducation of the person. It's not yeah. the miseducation of the Negro. We've yes. always been purposely miseducated. The yes. whole world has been miseducated on purpose. And the whole world. And and so Black History Month, and I and I hesitate to even put black in front of it. <laughs> I know what you did last week. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm like, you know, we're just so conditioned. Happy Black History, Black History Month. And for most of my life, I rejected the notion of a Black History Month just because it's insulting. Yes. On so many levels. Yes. Uh, but this is our opportunity to reframe everything. So uh, it kicked off with the 1st of February. People are like, oh, we got the shortest month. <laughs> so I had to drop a video of you on my show last year talking about it. Uh, but that, and that Woodson piece you did, that about 13-minute Woodson piece, that was sheer genius. No, you uh, got in. no, it was beautiful. I loved it. Most of it is because I you, stuff you say here. So, I mean, I'm like, just carry carry that baton forward. All right, so Carter G. Woodson, um, this, is, this is the time that we celebrate him, which most yes. people don't even know who he is, yes. unfortunately. Talk to us. Um, let me let me do this because and I keep looking around because there's a new book and Lord have mercy. I think I put it in my bag when I walked outside and I don't know what I did with it. It's too bad. There's a new there's a new book. It'll come to me maybe in a minute or maybe I look around. I see it stacked around here somewhere. Um, A sister who was in. Uh, Who's born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama, talking about the Montgomery bus boycott. And all the people, in fact, Fred Gray, who was still alive, they go this copy of his book over there called Bus Ride to Justice. He was Martin Luther King's lawyer. All these cats were very young. But this sister's book just came out. Mm-mm-mm. Anyway, she goes to interview a sister who she was around just a little bit younger than, but she didn't know who, of course, is still alive, who we've talked about, who we talked about rather extensively, in fact, in one of our previous sessions, um, Claudette Colvin. She went to the Bronx to interview. Her book just came out. So at any rate, they're talking. And what's something you just said a minute ago made me think about this. When you talk about the fact that these ancestors are always on our shoulders, they're always looking over our shoulders. They surround us. We all got to go that way. We're only the handful of people who are walking on top of the earth. The vast majority of people are on the way here or have already gone back into the thing. So, I mean, those ancestors. And though, and in fact, the ancient Egyptians, as, as Mario Beatty, among many others, a great a student of teacher of Egyptian language, and then our teacher, Jacob Carruthers, Theopalo Benga, and so many others, you know, taught us as we're translating the word ancestors. One of the words for ancestors the Egyptians have translates in literally as those in front of you, meaning you're you're going to join them. We are all advancing in that direction. So it even causes us to rethink time and space. The idea that they're not here, they're gone. No, you you going where they going. <laughs> and this baby right here just came back from where they are. And we all going to be over here in a minute. But anyway, when you talk about them being on the shoulders, it made me think about this new book because the sister is saying, I talked to Claudette Coven. I went to the Bronx. I went to her place and we sat and we talked for a long time. And she said, you know. Um, and of course, when we when we talked about her, we talked about the uh, twice toward freedom, the kind of young young adult literature kind of children's book young adult literature which was the only at length interview she's given in print form and the lady mentions that in the book she says that when she was talking to Claudette Coven Claudette Coven said when I was on that bus 
people think, you know, it's been written that I was taking off screaming and crying and fighting. She said, no, I got real quiet and I was sitting there and I felt like I couldn't get up because I had Harriet Tubman hand on one shoulder pushing me down and Sojourner Truth shoulder, a hand on my shoulder pushing me down. And you might think, okay, this is an elder. She's in her, you know, late 80s. She's, you know, adding, you know, she's narrating, which is part of kind of the way jollies do it. Because remember, we talked about that in another episode. Adoma is supposed to tell it the way it happened to the best of complete recollection, which is why this memory thing is so very important. But the jolly can have some flexibility. Sometimes you tell a story in a way to inspire people. So you might think, but then she goes on to say something that we talked about. She said, you know, I had them in my mind because we had just finished a unit on them at my school. And in fact, remember we talked about that when and when we talked about uh, Claudette Colvin, you know, the fact that a young, one of these young cats in, uh, who's a jazz musician, very promising young man was killed there in Montgomery. And so those young people at high school, the junior high school, elementary school have been already energized to resist by the death of one of their age mates. But she talks about the fact, and then she names her teacher. Um, the teacher she names, black woman in the segregated school teaching black history, not in February. And that's what made me think about it because those ancestors she said that were on her shoulder, the way they're on our shoulders now, Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, you know, or Araminta Ross, as which was her birth name, she 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 takes her husband's name, Ross. Uh, John Ross and I'm sorry John Tubman she takes John Tubman name Harriet Tubman does and then she takes her mother's name her mother's name was Harriet but her birth name Araminta her nickname was Minty that's that's a name that many scholars kind of reached a consensus it, it comes out of West Africa so the woman we call Harriet Tubman was born and given an African name by her parents and then she names herself giving herself her mother's name when she does toward the you know the the, the west facing world and takes her husband's name which i should add by the way and then i'm gonna walk my way back through to where we were with uh, claudette coven is not a unique phenomenon um certainly in the united states uh we see phyllis wheatley but phyllis wheatley's name we would know as phyllis wheatley peters because that was the name she called herself she took her husband's name yes phyllis wheatley was married in fact uh the good sister uh out there in oklahoma wrote the book the age of phyllis which actually got nominated for a uh uh an NAACP image awards for known jeffers brilliant brilliant piece of work she's a poet she's a scholar academic brilliant work if you, you see that book the age of phyllis get that but uh, she makes that point she says when, when when these black women are taking their husband's names they are not doing it as an act of submission it's an act of renaming because many of them particularly if you're in enslavement imagine this phyllis whitley was captured and taken into uh, enslavement the name phyllis is the name of the boat that brought her here that the woman uh who uh uh, Mrs. Wheatley was like, oh, that's cute. I really want her. Buy her for me. The, the husband buys Phyllis off the block. And they name her because it's white sentimentality for the boat. And Wheatley was the name of the, of the family that had her enslaved. When she when she takes Peters, she's saying, I'm giving Wheatley, I'm taking a name for myself. I don't, I don't, you know, Fatima may have been her name, which is a Muslim name, one of the names. Fatima, of course, the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad. If you read uh, the scholarship on her, including, uh, you know, Reef Anon's book, you'll get a sense that, you know, she came out of Muslim West Africa, Senegambia region, well-off people. But that's one thing. The other thing is you see these black women before the end of enslavement 
taking these other names in some ways it's a it's a critique and rejection of them slave master names that they had anyway if i'm gonna take a european name it's gonna be one i choose for myself and even after enslavement you see them not dropping the names that come from their black families that they're born into so all this stuff about women using three names i mean there's a fool running around now in the um in the United States Congress, this QAnon woman who we won't even honor with naming because that's not even a breadcrumb for you to follow today. Uh, there's a woman on the Supreme Court who we will mention in connection to the 1776 Commission who's got three names, ACB, I guess they've given it for short. But you know who really started that work? Black women in the 19th century. Because when they married men, it's you know the convention in this kind of patriarchy, you take the man's name. Okay, but I'm not leaving my family name. Think about it. Mary McLeod Bethune, Mary Church Terrell. Out of Bell Wells, Barnett. In other words, they were just, you know, I was going to add the name. And it's very, it's very interesting to see that Black women did that. So at any rate, when you see Claudette Colvin evoking her Black teachers in those Black schools that taught her that Black history, taught those children that Black memory, that was one of the things that fortified her in her sitting stand, in her sit on that bus. She said, I felt like those ancestors were on my shoulders, those two in particular. And that is really um, a little window into not only the power of Negro History Week, um, but the power of the institutions that allowed Carter Godwin Woodson, who was named after his grandfather and father, Carter is his grandfather's name, to in 1926 start what was then known as Negro History Week, and then engage in a process of spreading that week throughout the schools. Because remember, these are the schools of Jim Crow in the United States, American apartheid, U.S. apartheid. So the schools he was aiming at, the schools who supported him, the schools particularly after 1933, when many of the little tiny grants he would get from some of these white benefactors kind of started drying up, Woodson turned to the black community. And the black community was the one that pushed Black History Week, Negro History Week. And it wasn't for February, in fact, that's what we're gonna get into now. If you wanna read, I mean, you should read what Woodson wrote for himself, right? I mean, 1933 is a pivotal year. Of course, that's the book, The Miseducation of the Negro. We've talked about it many times. I suspect, Karen, I've been, I was telling Karen earlier, you know, telling Professor Hunter before we went live, you know, all of this work since we started almost, uh, well, not quite a year, I guess next month we'll make it close to a year ago. All of this work, is not only inspiring all of us in so many ways, it's inspired me very specifically because I knew we had to jailbreak the old ways. And as we know, uh, disaster, disruptions often accelerate trends. The old way of schooling was going to go the way of the past anyway. And so this has accelerated it. What we're doing now isn't, you know, just, you know, kind of aimless we kind of have conversations no it's organic but it's leading to a rethinking of structure and that's what sent me now into a whole nother mode of thinking about how we now formalize this so i'm sure shortly we'll have some curriculum stuff we'll add to curriculum that has been written including the curriculum the association for the study of african life history did around the miseducation of the negro and that will lead to some formal study some page by page section by section discussion and relinking and reanimating curriculum finding out what people are doing doing some doing some inventory doing some audits of what's going on already in the country and in the world around a specific text but so, you know, start with what he wrote and you can look uh, about that. There's a there was a sister who was kind of a bit of an apprentice to Charles Wesley, who was very good friends with and one of the apprentices in some ways 
of Carter Whitson. You know, we talked about that in the Whitson uh, conversation. So, you know, if you want to see the full conversation, just go back through and look for our Carter G. Whitson conversations and look and see what what, what you did, Prof, uh, this week on Carter Whitson. But this is a very good uh, book to start if you just want to kind of get an overall glimpse of him. And there are a number of different books. My friend Piero Degbovi, Degbovi has done a book. I mean, there's a lot of different books, but this is uh, Jacqueline and Goggins' book, Carter G. Whitson, A Life in Black History. And there's, of course, a picture of Woodson as an older man. It gives you a nice introduction to Woodson by somebody who didn't know Woodson, but who knew many of Woodson's uh, comrades, many of his younger comrades. She does a very good, very good job. Jacqueline Goggin does. Um, if memory serves me correctly, actually, she's preceded by a sister who did some important work, who's older than Goggin, but younger than Woodson and Wesley and them, um, Patricia Romero. Who did a lot of work if you have if many of y'all had that those those black history encyclopedia sets in your house ebony did a three volume one and then the association for the study of negro life and history did one it kind of rust colored and there were multi-volumes in there um she was one of the editors deputies to charles wesley who then was you know getting on in years wesley eventually became the director of the uh afro-american museum in philadelphia the oldest black museum in the country of course is dusable museum shout out to the dusable uh, my very good friend, uh, Dr. Kim Delaney's director of education there. Um, and then, of course, you have the Charles Wright in, in Detroit. You have the uh, you have the African-American Museum in Wilberforce and you have the one in Philadelphia, 1976, which is going to be important in about 60 seconds. I'm keeping an eye on the clock and remembering you don't want to make sure we have this conversation. Um, because 1976 being the so-called bicentennial of the birth of the United States, was also a moment when black people rallied the troops and tried to shore up and extend the institutional thrust of the black thinking institutions and teaching institutions that created uh, independent scholarship and teaching for black communities. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm kind of get this together. Karen, as we were talking about, you know, oh, what should we talk about this week? This is the first week of February, of course. And we know that this is Negro History Month in uh, Black History Month in the United States. 1976, you know, I've seen a couple of people allude to the fact that, yes, Gerald Horn, formerly, uh, Gerald Horn, not Gerald Horn. See, I think black all the time. So the Gerald in my mind comes to Horn. For many people, it might be Ford. But at any rate, Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford, uh, in 1976 uh well in 75 you know it says okay well you know we're going to formally you know recognize black history month it's okay that's when it moves from a month to a from a week to a month yeah no no see what happens is in fact let me just let our sister this is uh this is one of the volumes of the negro history bulletin this is from 1976. let's go to very quickly Volume 39, number two. And people ask, you know, you know the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life and History, now African-American yeah, African Life and History, publishes this. It was started in 1937 by Dr. Woodson. It was aimed at school teachers and school children. And we'll talk a lot about, uh, you know, when you talk about the, the work of the association and the Negro History Bulletin, this was for school teachers. You know, short historical essays. They were encouraged to write essays and submit them. Children were encouraged to submit work, 
sometimes they wrote poetry sometimes they wrote what they found like if your school was named for a black person the children some of the children's job was to go and find out who that black person was research and write it up and some of those things found their way into the negro history bulletin from 1937 through 30s 40s 50s 60s by the time you get to the 70s and 80s you see more academics writing in it in a kind of different mix and one of the things they commit to in volume 39 number two is in fact uh the editor says um in connection with Woodson, the founder, we have noted that our later bulletins failed to stress, as he did, material that was useful for elementary teachers, elementary school teachers and pupils. Um, we are now making a concrete resolution to try to remedy this defect. Hopefully you shall see results before long. And they do. They, they, they try to commit to that. The editor, her name is Thelma Perry. If you, if you go back through all of our conversations, if you, talk, if you touch on the ones where we talk about school teachers, and I was thinking about that, Karen. I was like, we've talked about so many different things, even in passing in a searchable database. That may be a job. Some of you young people out there, maybe, you know, we have a searchable database. That would be incredible. Well, actually, you've actually talked about that. But anyway, I mean, I get ahead of myself because we talked about Thelma Perry. Thelma Perry is the sister who wrote the history of the Black Teachers Associations. I, I, I'll fight the urge to, to pull it out of one of these stacks that y'all can't see off camera here. She wrote a history of the American Teachers Association, the ATA, which was the Black Teachers Association. And she was also the um, executive editor of the Negro History Bulletin in 76. She and I'll just show you the whole thing. If you all want to stop your uh, stop the stop YouTube and look at it, you can read it for yourself. That's an interesting way of using the technology to get the document out. But she says. Expansion of the week to Black History Month was deliberate on the part of our director, Dr. Peacock. That's J. Rupert Peacock, who's a very important figure, P-I-C-O-T-T, -T, and the board of directors. As originally conceived by the founder, this gives you everything you need. People say, why do you give us it? Just listen. As originally conceived by the founder, Carl Woodson, the observance would be held in whatever week included the birthdays of the late black leader, Frederick Douglass, and the Civil War president, Abraham Lincoln. That would be next week. Usually it's the second week in February, right? Or close. But watch this. Actually, let me think about it. Lincoln's birthday, Douglas' birthday on the 14th. Uh, what is Lincoln's the 16th? I'm trying to y'all look it up. When both birthdays could not be included within a single week, watch this. The Douglas birthday would be chosen. Y'all understand something? Because Woodson was very astute. He said, let me link something to the DNA of this country. And in linking it to the DNA of the United States, because he writes this when he writes his book, uh, The Negro in Our History, 1922, which went through many editions. In fact, eventually Charles Wesley, who I talked about, will be elevated to being co-author with him. This was the textbook that was used in the black schools. Some people say, oh, we got to teach black history. Yeah, black people were teaching black history in the black schools. It's no question about it. And in the black churches, as we heard when y'all were talking about Annie Turnbull Malone and a lot of the black institutions, right? Or the other black institutions. So, but Woodson says this isn't about so much the Negro history as it is, as you just said, Karen, the Negro in history. He writes that in the uh, pages of the journal Negro History. He says, you know, if you include the history of everyone in the world, the case of the Negro needs no special pleading. So don't take 1926 when Negro History Week is started as the only time you're supposed to talk about it. We'll close with that because we've talked about this many times. But this is what then Dr. Perry goes on to say. It's, see, I'm just saying, if the two birthdays don't fall in the same week, where do we start? We start with Douglas, just Negroes. Come on now. You know, Father Abraham, that's our friend. That's our friend. At least he claimed to be our friend. Who knows? Anyway, we're going to start with Douglas. Duh, why would you even ask a question like that? Now, he says, I mean, she says, 
With expansion of programs and larger perspectives, the entire month of February is now committed to the project. And that's what leads us. If you look at this table of contents, I'm going to show you how the table of contents. This is the table of contents for that issue of the Negro History Bulletin. You see Thelma Perry with the preview. They include four speeches from their meeting in October 1975. J. Rupert Peacock, who's the director. Samuel Etheridge, who we'll talk about in a minute, maybe a little. Constance Baker Motley, very important. And Lerone Bennett Jr. Lerone Bennett. Y'all see my shirt. I stand with Bennett. This Bennett College. Y'all still give money to Bennett, right? The Women's College in North Carolina, who they tried to say take their accreditation, said they didn't have no money in the bank. They don't have. And then we, everybody rallied and sent money. And this is one of the things. If you sent certain money, they would, you know, above a certain amount, they would send you a T-shirt. So I stand with Bennett. And I said, you know, let me put my to stand with Bennett uh, shirt on today. And then as I'm getting ready, I'm thinking, well, we're going to talk about Lerone Bennett. And I said, man, these ancestors, they got jokes. I wasn't even thinking about Lerone Bennett. <laughs> like, well, I mean, anyway. So, anyway, 1926 is 50 years after the centennial celebration of 1776. Now, okay, that's interesting, a little bit of trivia. Let me watch how these ancestors work. They moved from a week to a month, 50 years after Woodson started the week. And it was a decision made by the association because the work they had done had overflowed the capacity of a week to do. And they said, well, we'll just go on. And anyway, when anytime the two birthdays don't fall on the same week, we go with Douglas and we extended a week anyway. So, you know, let's continue. So this wasn't a presidential proclamation. This wasn't external. In other words, it wasn't the social structure. If we look at the uh, African States curriculum, we did for the Philadelphia curriculum. The question, the first question we ask is, who are Africans to other people? Social structure. This wasn't a social structure. It wasn't dictated by the social structure. It was dictated within black communities, the governance structure. Who are we to each other? They did that. Now, why did Woodson do it? And then I'm going to come back to this because that 187, keep that in mind just for a second. 1875, I'm sorry, 1876. The 100th anniversary of the so-called United States, 1926, the founding of Negro History Week, 1976, which is the bicentennial of the founding of the United States, so to speak. And it is also 50 years after Negro History Week starts. So they do a special is issue as they move from a week to a month to reflect on what they're trying to accomplish and to go back in time to think about Woodson and then come forward to think about everything that's happened since. And when I tell you what we about to do is going to send chills that it's going to send chills down my spine to revisit it one more time. I'm going to tell you, well, everybody will be the judge of what it does for you and to you. But it's interesting because 50 years before this came out, 1926, when Woodson starts the week, he says, this is a brief period of time for us to celebrate what we have studied about the Negro the entire year. And remember, this is what's going on in the black schools. That's where Claudette Colvin could learn black history, not in February, to animate and, and help shape her spirit so that when they come for her on that bus, she's sitting there because she got two ancestors holding her down by her testimony today. And so... When you read the Negro History Bulletin, I was looking through some of them because I have just about all of them. And I, I was looking through some of them and there was a October 1943 issue. 
because I was looking back at Woodson talking about growing up. He did an article in 1943 called My Recollection of Veterans of the Civil War, where he talks about my granddaddy whipped a white man and had him had him oppressed, had him a slave. Then my father whipped a white man and had to leave and came back with the army and they beat up the white dude that he was talking about, hung him uh, up on a tree and whipped him. And then he escaped and fought with uh, a lot of people, including George Armstrong Custer. Go look up the My Recollection of Veterans of the Civil War. That's Carter Woodson. And as you said, Prof, when you were talking uh, during the week and put on YouTube, the whole conversation that you were having about Woodson in that coal mine and then going to Oliver Jones' little house and reading the newspapers to those men, that that they're veterans. Many of them are veterans of the Civil War, like his father and his uncles were. But at any rate, I'm going through the 1943 volume because I like to read that every once in a while, particularly February. But I saw a little advertisement. It said Negro History Week. It said the next celebration of Negro History Week will take place February 13th to the 20th, 1944. Persons thus interested should begin now in serious study of the Negro in order to have something to celebrate at that time. The aim of the celebration is not to enter upon one week or one month. Study of the Negro. If the history of the Negro can be disposed of in one week, it is not worth directing attention to. Woodson's whole thing was you use February to talk about what you did in May which did in October and January, what you did in March and what you did in August. This is the moment. And so that's why one of the last things he wrote before he made transition back to the place we all go on, wherever that is. And we talked about this in the Woodson thing, so I won't belabor any point about it. He wrote the in the uh, uh, March 1950 editorial for the Negro History Bulletin, this, this thing right here. He writes an, uh, an essay entitled, a little article entitled, No Study and Consequently No Celebration, where he says, it's evident for the numerous calls for orators during Negro History Week that schools and their administrators do not take the study of the Negro seriously enough to use Negro History Week as a short period of time for demonstrating what the students have learned in their study of the Negro the whole year. Then he goes after the speakers. I got a lot of friends who call it Black History Month because they go from the red to the black in speaking engagements, right? So... <laughs> He says, these mischievous orators, as has been said again and again in these pages, have no message on Negro history. What they talk about is the race problem and how it can be solved. He said, don't be talking to young people about the race problem and how it can be solved. They haven't matured enough to even grasp that as the thing. And that isn't what we should be focusing on anyway. They should be focusing on the study of our people so they can use that information to inspire and instruct them to change the conditions we're in. Woodson was 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 angry about that. And now, mind you, this is pre-54. And even after 54, they didn't desegregate the schools. But so he's writing primarily to black schools with black principals and black teachers. So you, you see this kind of difficulty. And then, of course, he makes transition at the house down here on 9th Street in D.C., April 1950, 26 years later. And 50 years after they start Negro History Week with the association and the organizations Woodson was connected to, he was a member of Shadow Baptist Church, which is right in the same block as his house on 9th Street. They helped promote it. The black school teachers helped promote it. His fraternity, Omega Sci-Fi, they had made him an honorary queue. He said, OK, I'll, I'll join. And here's what I want from you. So Omega Sci-Fi, shout out to the Sons of Blood and Thunder for pushing Black History Month. They really did that. Uh, they even donated money when they restored the home. They led that. In fact, whenever you go to Woodson's birthday celebration here in D.C., the Q's always have a pride of place now. And the president of Omega Sci-Fi, general president, usually is there to make a comment. But in this 1976 issue with those speeches, let me just mention a couple things very quickly. Rupert Peacock, who is the uh, the executive director of Asala, 
talks about why they had to do this and the things they want to do. And they talk about a Woodson statue, redoing the house, sponsoring national organizations to work and do work. Then you go to the speech by Samuel Etheridge, who was the executive assistant to the review board of the NEA, National Education Association. Why is that important? Remember, Thelma Perry has just written by this time this history of the American Teachers Association, which he talks about. He talks about. And then he says, you know, I want to acknowledge her because I want to talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, we don't have as many teachers as we used to have. Ancestors, Karen, watch this. Just one line. This is no time to remind you that in 1954, Kentucky mm -hmm. had approximately 75 black high school principals and that today there are only two black high school principals in the whole state. Nor that in 1954, Kentucky employed approximately 350 black principals, elementary and secondary, and that in 1972, it employed only a total of 32 black principals. Then he goes on through the rest of the tizzy. He said, since segregation, we've been taking an L in the number of school teachers. And guess what? The L continues to this day. As my dear friend and brother who I was in conversation with yesterday, Citizen Stewart, they have something called Freedom Fridays. We were talking about Black History Month. My man, uh, Sharif el Mecki and the Center for Black Educators in Philadelphia is trying to do something about it. He says, you know, we our crisis is a crisis. We don't have Black teachers. Guess what? That, guess what? That wasn't a problem pre-54. See, and so what, what Etheridge is doing, looking back from 54 to 76 is saying, while we're talking about the progress, let us deal with the fact that the number of black, in fact, he says this, he says, this is no time to tell you that the 1972 health, education and welfare statistics show you that we have only 3,172 black principals left in the South. Wow. <laughs> Let's count the number now. Since there are 22,078 positions for principals in the 17 states, black now blacks now represent only a one seventh of the principalships. I estimate that a more equitable number would be 5,308. He goes on. Now, if you bring that to now, around 1987, according to statistics, I said, let me go talk about these, these breadcrumbs. About 87% of all the teachers in public schools in this country were white. 2015, 2016, that number's 80%. So then some of these research scholars say, see, we've made progress. Okay, first of all, where are you starting from? Because these black teachers in the South and all over the country in segregated schools, they did not want to lose the quality of their curriculum. They did not want to lose the concern for their students. What they wanted to end was apartheid, the laws. Don't think they were dreaming of sitting next to your daughter in class or your son in class. And that was going to make them smarter. I put the best black schools up against. And you talked about that when you mentioned Paul Lawrence Dunbar in D.C. And we talked about that when we talked about Paul Lawrence Dunbar of Little Rock, reading of The Long Shadow of Little Rock, Daisy Bates' book, where you see the Little Rock Nine came out to segregated schools. They were they were champion students. So, so you put the best against the best, we win every time. So they weren't trying to do anything other than give us our resources, give us uh, the, the, uh, the legal protection that we have as being part of this country. And, you know, but wait a minute, whoa, wait, we're losing principalships, we're losing teachers, whoa, whoa, whoa. So then what you see is, Black teachers by 2015, 2016, make up 6.7% of the, of the teaching force in public schools. We ain't talking about private schools. And what number has now gone beyond that to make that 80% uh, white number decline to 80%? 8.8% of the teachers in the workforce are what were grouped in the statistics at label as Hispanic or Latinx. And of course, we know those numbers. What does that tell us? Because some of those teachers are Afro-Latino. You start calling places like New York and New Jersey, places like that. But my point is this, Peacock and then Etheridge are bringing this up. And Etheridge 
is talking about the fact this is a problem, but where I really want to go. And I'll just mention this sister right here. Here's a name. Here's a breadcrumb for y'all. The great Constance Baker Motley, Howard University, Judge Motley. She's got her speech in here, the continuing American Revolution. She's talking about all the black lawyers that killed Jim Crow. And she says, and she starts naming them as early as 1849. If y'all want to know the history of the black lawyer, there's some good books on it. I like uh, the former dean of the Howard University Law School, J. Clay Smith, wrote a book called Emancipation, the History of the Black Lawyer. Get J. Clay Smith's book if you can. Um, and there have been some books written since, but the thing about the books that are written before this, every generation has to write history, has to renew the history. And it seems to me that, er that this generation is reflecting the general status of the society at large. I, I just want to... Yeah, pause. Yeah, come on. Not, not just pause, but it, it seems as if we've allowed them to dictate to us what our Black history experience is going to be. And they've commodified it. Woo! You just talked about how, you know, all the budgets, all the corporations, all the corporations know that they're going to target Black people during Black History Month, and then they have no money the <laughs> other months, right? So those speaking engagements that you talked about? Yes. In the books that are coming out right now, that yes. the white facing books, Damn. come on now. And and but we we allow that to happen. We allow yeah, we did. To come in, diminish our situation, yeah. put some coin in some people's pockets, right? So that they continue this myth, right? And now we're sitting here right now, so, so woefully um, I don't even want to say uneducated or miseducated because I think it's more insidious than just miseducation, right? We're we're sitting here right now, literally chewing on the regurgitated mess that somebody is. And not 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 here, but we generally are because this is the this no, is the thing at the water. Oh my God, go on, yes. No, I'm just I'm just you know as you're talking, I'm like, damn, you know, we lost professors and teachers and 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 the ones that we have are so scared to actually do the work that Carter G. Woodson wanted, which was to further this every single day that you're in the classroom. There shouldn't be a day that you don't talk about history and bring up black people because there's no country, there's no world without us. So if you're not doing that, what good are you? As there's, a no va there's no vaccine. There's, there's no, no vaccine without it. You know what I'm saying? Oh. There's, no, there's, no, there's no even theory of inoculation. The cat Wanzimus, who told Cotton Mouther, you know, we see this pox thing in West Africa. We usually take a little bit of it for somebody has one, and then we give a little bit of that to the people who aren't. They get sick a little while, and then they're immunized. He introduced that, you know what I'm saying? So you're right. There's not a topic. This is Woodson's point. There's not a topic you can talk about in human history, and that's all Woodson said. He said, this ain't Negro history. It's the Negro in history. If you tell everyone's history, we don't need no special pleading. No, come on back in, Karen. I want you to finish this thought. Let me show you how these ancestors work in a minute. No, I, just, no, I finished my thought. I just was, you know, as you're talking, you know, and all of us are sitting here, everybody has their own little thing that they pick out of the things that you say, right? And Michael mm -hmm. Harriet <laughs> on Twitter, because I'm, I, you know, anybody have any questions? He was like, every week I have a question. I'm yelling at the TV <laughs> and asking my question, thinking y'all can hear me. And then I remember this is live. And yes. I'm yes. not in class yet, but you know, it's, 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 um, for everyone oh, watching there, there are little pieces that we can all apply. And then the question that I ask myself is what can I do about it? You know, mm. everybody who has children, what are you doing about it? Everybody that is in the classroom, there are a lot of teachers in this space all over the globe. I don't care what country you're in. The globe. Karen, I see you sitting there. With that beautiful head wrap and that oh, just beautiful you know what i'm saying and it reminds me this is the latest issue of new african 
magazine. This is published out of London. The brother, they, they do an annual issue, the 100 uh, most influential Africans of 2020. And the thing I love about it is they never exclude the diaspora. So one of the sisters they have is one who also wears a head wrap all the time, the great Ilhan Omar. And, and they got her right as Somalia, US, right? And it says Trump's brave nemesis, Ilhan Omar. I know some people are gonna get mad. Well, get mad. Maybe you stroke out and get out of the way and we don't have to worry about you no more. But the point is, I'm not talking about nobody on this. I'm talking about the people who look at her as a terrorist right. and try on the floor of the United States Congress to compare her with this fool from Georgia. And by the way, did you see uh did you see the homie uh um uh Leonard Jeffrey's nephew? Oh, Hakeem. Oh Hakeem said you don't want this. No, no none of this smoke. No, <laughs> you don't want it, brother. Yeah. See, the thing about Hakeem is he's a he's a politician. And you, we can we can talk about his politics. We can have criticisms, but in the moment he was giving smoke to that fool from Utah, that Negro Republican standing with the trees with the with the treason uh, the traitors. In that moment, he was a black man, and you know how King liked to talk with his hands. He did this, man, and he kept moving his hand. He said, "You don't want this. You don't want this smoke." In other words, you know. But anyway, Omar, yeah. I'm saying that to say that our history is always global. And Woodson understood it. And oh, by the way, parent, par parenthetically, when y'all go back and watch, if you haven't watched uh, Professor Hunter's brilliant kind of introduction to Carter Woodson this week that she put on YouTube, and you talked about going down that uh, that trail once you got hooked in the Philippines. I immediately <laughs> thought about there's a book by Daniel uh, Emmerwar called How to Hide an Empire. Come on. Uh, Emmerwar is I M M E. R W A H R and knowing you and again y'all see this is the let me just pause here again this is the gift please understand this is the gift of black media scholar activists masters like Karen Hunter this is the gift I mean you know Roland Martin five days a week got a new show I'm grateful for the fact that we don't have to hold our breath and wait you know I'm not and this is not a well let me pause you know it's not Everybody got to work. So I'm not going to, this is not, I'm not criticizing anybody who's in white face and mass commercial media, but let me tell you the difference between this. This is the gift. See, I know that as likely as not, Karen Hunter going to track down Daniel Emmerwar. <laughs> and you know what you're going to get? You're going to get the benefit of hearing how the United States is an empire. And you know how you hide it? You never let your colonies turn into states. Puerto Rico, Ho, Philippines. Ho, right. So when you went down to the Philippines, I was shouting like Mike. I'm like, tell it, tell it. United States is an empire. Well, it was Why? shocking because, you know, I've read that Carter G. Woodson taught in the Philippines. And I was like, what is he doing in the Philippines? And then I clicked, you know, because it's not hard. Google's your friend. Right. And it said, an, uh, what is it, un- Uncharted territory of the United States for this period of time. And I'm like, that's weird. Yeah. So the, the, the Panama Canal zone where John McCain was born. They control yeah. that. In fact, um, you know, the First Nations folk are having a very robust and very important conversation now about Deb Holland, that interior, if she's confirmed. It says not enough. We don't believe in just having somebody who looked like us who came from our background in an office. That's not progress. Progress is if because she came from us, when we bang on her, she's more responsive. And so they were talking about, they were going back, they were taking it back. And I had thought about, I mean, 
y'all know the state of Oklahoma, which comes in relatively late. The state of Oklahoma at one time, there was a proposition put together by the folk, you know, the, the Chickasaw, the Creek, the Seminoles in Oklahoma kind of leading the charge that the state of Oklahoma be incorporated into the United States as a sovereign, a quasi-sovereign state called Sequoia. And they came to Washington, D.C. to try to negotiate that. They were rejected. Now, I'm raising that. And, you know, if y'all want to really look up Deb Holland, you know, because Deb Holland, one of her backgrounds out of New Mexico, she worked with the gaming industry. And so there's this interesting conversation about um, the uh, what's the name of the mm, 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 it kills me because I teach it. The federal legislation, the uh, nah, 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 oh, it'll, it'll come to me in any way. It governs relations between the sovereign nations of Native America and the United States government. But um, mm, it'll come to me anyway. But anyway my point is this. Gaming is supposed to be something that never diminishes sovereign Native American relationships with the states that they have casinos and stuff in. But these states have been extorting Native Americans. And you know, the Bureau of Indian Affairs comes out of the Department of Interior, but there's something. No, no, the Indian Child Welfare Act is a separate piece of legislation. But anyway, no, no, no. Actually, there's the it's the Gaming Act. It's the Federal Gaming Act for Native America. But what they're saying is. It's cool to have a sister in there who is from us, but if she ain't gonna do no more than the white people, then we don't care. In fact, it's a setback because you think representatives, you know, having these people in these spots translates into power. It does not. And and I'm listening to it thinking that's what we have to remember. Having individuals in the space, uh, no, no, it 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 it, it occurred to me the um it's not the Treaty of Fort Laramie. No, 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 no. it's maybe the Indian Gaming Act. The Indian Gaming Act, I think it's gaming is in is in the legislation. But at any rate, I said that to say that the the concept of what we're after is really what we have to revisit. And I'm hoping we can spend, you know, these these February Saturdays using maybe Negro History Week and then month as points of departure. And I'm gonna comb through a lot more. I'm gonna go back through a lot of these um Negro history bulletins that really, as we think about this and can unpack it some, you know. How do we balance between novelty and institutional memory? In other words, how do we regain the momentum of the things that we knew, the things that we established, the things that we've envisioned, and take that momentum into now and apply that momentum of memory to solving our problems in this moment? Because what we don't have now is the momentum of memory. And to the, to the point that you raised, these two books, and you see, I'm going to show them to y'all, but I'm not telling y'all to buy them. These two books, my man Joe Rouser down at uh, Bridge Street Books, you know, I don't really leave the house. I had a COVID test last week. Okay, I'm cool. I knew that, but, but I'm not, you know, I try to, you know, stay clear, right? Yes. And so, you know, but if I venture out, it's very targeted. I go get something to eat. So I go to the grocery store or whatever. I'm staying okay. And then, I, you know, I got to go find out where the books, what books are, you know, and I, and I don't believe in, you know, I mean, I, obviously we use online to do what we need to do. I mean, I Sankofa, you know, my people, so, but also sometimes you got to go in to the good bookstore. I ain't talking about the mass marketed commercial stuff. I'm talking about the bookstores, the ones around the country that are bookstores. So, cause, cause the bookstores are run by book people, In other words, and book people, the book buyers in bookstores who are book people curate their libraries where if you can put two or three pennies together you can check out the book forever that's what bookstores really are so my man joe at bridge street i mean these cats and rod the guy who orders they, they always in tandem so last night i said let me sneak over here because you know i got you know. okay 
it's February, so I know what's happening. They get ready to have the uh, Negro book drop. There's a book that came out earlier this week, 400 Souls. Uh, Ibram Kendi, who went to Temple like I did a few years behind me, Keisha Blaine, other editors. Number of people in there, some of my friends. And, we, and you know, I'm flipping through the book. I didn't buy that book because uh, eventually I'll get it. But, you know, anytime you start a book on African-American history with this is the first, you know, immediately I think to myself, OK, this is white facing marketing or you don't know. Either you don't know or you don't care. Them only two categories. Because if you're writing about subjects of African people in the United States in particular and say this is the first, then you got another agenda. And I'm not, and again, this isn't a criticism because, again, people say, well, you haven't read it. How do you No, no, I read enough of it. Trust me, y'all know I ain't going to talk about something. I ain't read nothing of it. So, you know, if, I, if I'm not going to get it immediately, I'll read the introduction. I'll read the first couple of essays. I'll flip to the index, read the whole index to get a frame of the book. Then I'll come back through and page by page go through. And for something like that, you know, I'm not going to read every word of every sentence of every paragraph. But as you probably can imagine, I read pretty quickly. So, you know, it ain't going to take me. And plus, I'm also looking for the silences and the absences. So I'm looking for, hmm, 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 hmm. Okay, okay. Now, when I do get it and read more carefully, it'd be clear. But I'm saying, but what I see is a tsunami of promotion. CBS, MSNBC, CNN, Time Magazine, the cover of Time Magazine next week. Amanda Gorman's on it. Uh, Brother Ibram's got an article saying this is the new black renaissance. And I'm like, okay, all of this is white facing. And if it does some work, fine. But do not mistake that with the institutional thrust and the momentum of memory, because it is completely separate from that. I'm not saying it's not work that should be done, but I'm saying, yeah. So I'm in there. Joe is like, man, you seen these? I said, no, nah, let me browse around here. Here's a book. I ain't going to put it up too close. Jonathan Scott Holloway, The, the Call of Freedom. Okay. Professor Holloway, good brother. But I'm saying, let me see. Let me flip through here. And I read the front and the back and the index. And then I'm saying, okay, it resolves itself into America. In fact, I'll just show you the cover. I'm not endorsing this book. You see the cover? Yeah. That cover tells you the narrative. Okay. Then Thomas Holt, you know, he got a book, The Movement, The African-American Struggle for Civil Rights. Now, this is an older brother. I've seen Holt's done a lot of good work. You know, it's interesting. So I'm reading through same framework. Let me tell you about frameworks and books. The framework tells you what the narrative is, what, what the facts are being recruited to do. History is all about narrative. It's all about choices. It's about presence and silence. What is not being said, what's being said. When you narrate a history of blacks in the military in the United States and the first thing you talk about is Christmas addicts and say we fought in every war, that's a book that is white facing. Or trying to convince Negroes to forget that as many black people fought for the British as fought for the Americans in this so-called American Revolution, and at least in Virginia, maybe 30,000 ran away. Meaning what? Everybody on every side was fighting for the same thing. What? Freedom. Do not frame this as these Negroes was crying in a Mel Gibson movie for the flag. They're fighting for their freedom. So you, every generation going to write some new books. And I'm saying, this is 2020. We don't understand that. I know Thomas Holt knows it. I know John Scott Holloway know it. I've never met Thomas Holt. I've met John Scott Holloway, been on, been on, been in work with him. You know what I'm saying? So I know you know it. Has done some brilliant work. He did a book called uh, Behind the Veil on uh, Howard University, the scholars of the 1930s and 40s. It's right up there with, uh, with um, mm -mm -mm, what's my man's name in Ohio? Anyway, all that stuff will come back to me. Um, who wrote about the town to 10th at, 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 um, at Howard. Some important work, all of it, important work. But 
And oh, watch this. You see who published these? Oh, Oxford University Press. I'm saying so. This is black, this is black history month stuff. This is 150 pages with the index. And 30 some pages are the index and footnotes. This is exactly 150 pages. You know what this is? It's the marketing department. Do you Negroes have some books that you can put together right quick? Oh, wait, Karen, you muted. Jump in, because see, publishing is Professor Hunter's another. No, I mean, this, is, this. this is the thing we have to fight against. Come on. I remember being a, a young reporter at the Daily News, really young, in my 20s, and I went out to cover a story. I don't remember which story it was. It was some, something to do with Black people. And I remember my editor telling me what the story was before I left. You were sitting in the office. You're not Black. How you going to tell me what the story is in the streets? I thought my job was to go out and get the information. And in publishing, there are very few, uh, I, have a, I have a saying about black editors because a lot of the black editors don't come from black spaces, right? But they make determinations about, you know, because they're serving a bottom line, just like a lot of media outlets are serving a bottom line. So they will commission books that they've already concluded are sellable. Not whether it's truthful, not whether it's actually uncovering history, not whether it's doing the work, but is it sellable? Because they are committed to shareholders and that bottom line. And those black editors sitting in those seats know that their livelihood depends upon them satisfying those white folk who sign their checks. Right. It's a, it's a hellified, you know, and I have to tip my hat to all of the black publishers and, and there aren't that many of them. And all of the black bookstores, there aren't that many of them. Nope. Because the, the power is in the in the hands of the people that make these decisions. That's and right. they need to determine what our story is, which is why what you do every single week mm. on every platform in a, in that classroom as well. So important. But uh, that pissed me off when you just held up that. No, <laughs> and you see, now, now I'm not telling y'all, now look, now I'm not telling y'all, thank you, Karen, because first, let me pause, because we get excited. And every week I say, the rhythm and the pulse and the tone of our conversation is a vital element of these conversations we have. So let me let me slow down because I get excited, animated, because you again have struck a, such a deep resonant chord and you strike it from a posture, from a stance, from a position of experience. So you're not listening to someone. We're not listening to someone who doesn't know from experience. I was there. I did this. And then, and then who hasn't also as I as I was so uh so inspired to hear you rehearse just in a moment in the clips that I watched this week about how you know you wrote because you had to. You you said, you know, I'm writing, I'm publishing. This is this is a multiple New York Times bestseller author. This is a person who can put out, as you said, two, three books a year. You know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, you reading these, like, okay, this book was written in about two months. I mean, I'm reading through saying, wow. And see, I know the the academic work of both these brothers, you know, and as somebody who has focused almost all my energy in the classroom, you know, who is now moving into a phase of life where I'm going to now return and have already started writing more, you know, and of course, this is really the imprimatur for a lot of that. I understand and respect what it takes to write and in that 400 souls book for example there are a number of people who you know i not only respect i admire um i think are very important mike is in there you know harry my man Corey walker is in there it's not imani is in there i mean it's a lot of different people right and so this isn't a slam 
this is an understanding that the agenda of the white, what Clyde Taylor would call art culture complex is not our agenda. And so there is a need for that type of um, that type of work. But what happens when the objective, as you just laid out for us, Karen, the objective of the institutions that subsidize that work, that pay for it, quite frankly, who uh, have an objective, whether it be sales, they got to move that weight or making sure the apple cart never is completely unsettled. What happens when that objective clashes with the objective of people who imagine, you know what? I know that happened in the past to other people, but it ain't gonna happen to me. I'm smarter than them. I'm gonna use this. I'm telling you, you're not smarter than them. Not because you're not smart. Many people brilliant. That ain't got nothing to do with it. This is a game of power and institutional memory. And on that front, on that front, let us return to the Negro History Bulletin. Let us return to the speech by Lerone Bennett Jr. And let us, to riff off of the sisters at Bennett College, let us stay in with Bennett <laughs> and watch how Karen Hunter has conjured these ancestors and sent them back into the DMV and shook me to open the page to a brother who I love, respect, am deeply grateful to whatever forces exist in the universe that I was able to tell him that mouth to ear the last time when both of us were standing in a bookstore on the south side of Chicago, over there on the University of Chicago campus, a used bookstore in the 19th century section. And I'm on my hands and knees looking and I see his shoes look up and it's the Ron Bennett Jr. deep in thought studying the, 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 the shelves. And I say, the Ron Bennett, how you doing, brother? What you doing? I'm hunting Lincoln, brother. So <laughs> the last time I had a conversation with the great Ron Bennett who made transition three years ago. This is the Ronald Bennett giving his remarks at the Asala meeting. My God, Carter Woodson. He talks about him, but let me just get to the point. He said, oh, my God. He said, mm, even in the highest circle, he's, first of all, he says, we owe to Carter Woodson. We owe to the association. We owe to all the women and men who are in it, all the work we've done to date. Then he says, even in the highest circles. He says, even in the universities and churches, even in the precincts of the purest souls, there is still a deep-seated doubt about the essential humanity of Black people. He says, even in the highest circles, even in the ivory towers, even in the places where men have read all the books, there is still a hankering after the good old days, when the blonde and blue-eyed God was in heaven and Clark Gable and Scarlett O'Hara were in the big house and the Blacks were in their appointed places in the fields. We haven't made the case yet. He said, slavery and the subordination of black people are still the dominant passions of the United States of America. I got my eye on the clock. I know we're going to question the answer, but he ain't even got warmed up. Karen, when I tell you these phrases I'm about to read next, oh my God. Oh, watch this. He said, we haven't made our case yet. We haven't even made our case in our own house and on our own ground. He says, there is still a feeling in some black circles that a black organization is necessarily inferior to a white organization. There is still a feeling in some black circles that a white historical association is more important than a black historical association. There is still a feeling in some black circles that reading a paper before white scholars is more important than reading a paper before black scholars. We haven't made our case yet. He says, we haven't even convinced ourselves. 
I want you to think about that, my friend. But he ain't even wait. He ain't even digging in the crate yet. Watch this. He says it will be objected that I'm overlooking the widespread dissemination of material on Black heritage. This is 1976, not 2020. So this is before all the Netflix stuff. This is before Black Panther. This is before blackness is everywhere. But watch what Lerone Bennett warns us is about to happen. He says I'm not overlooking that fact. He says on the contrary, it is the basis of my premise. He says. There are images and echoes of black heritage almost everywhere every today. These are sight. There are sights and sounds on TV. Remember, this is about the time when Cicely Tyson plays in Roots, and and they and they recruit all the black celebrities and actors they can. O.J. Simpson was in Roots. Remember, all of John Amos comes off good times. He's on Roots. It's like you see all them people that you used to watch, and then it would be like if LeBron James was in Roots. O.J. Simpson, all this. So it was, yeah, black American triumph. He says, there are lesson plans in the schools and courses and colleges. Okay, 1619 Project, which is not a curriculum written, well, it was written for schools, but of course, teachers have their own curriculum already. So when you carpet bomb the HBCUs with copies and say, teach this, my thing is, I'll be glad to teach this right now. If you ask one question, what, did you carpet bomb Harvard and Stanford and University of Chicago and University of Florida? Did you carpet bomb uh, Carnegie Melton? Melton? Did you carpet bomb University of Texas with these and tell their teachers to throw away whatever they prepared to teach and teach. If you did, then yes, let's all teach it. Don't mess with teachers. Anyway, he says, never before have we been so popular. Now, here we go. They have even heard of us on Madison Avenue. Mm -hmm. Black Heritage sells soap, whiskey, and detergent. It sells everything, in fact, except the meaning of Black Heritage and the humanity of Black people, which is precisely the point. Never before have so many talked so much about black heritage in so many places with so little understanding. Young sister reading a poem this Sunday at the Super Bowl when they put down the slave rebellion and tried to execute in terms of employment the slaves who started it. Let's be very clear. Never, never before have so many talked so much about black heritage in so many places with so little understanding. This ain't 19, this ain't 2020, this is 20, this is 1976. Watch what happens next. He says, despite or perhaps because of the widespread dissemination of the material on black heritage, the black image is threatened today almost everywhere. There's an increasing tendency in all media to identify black heritage with dependency and docility. Now you can say, well, we see heroic images. Yeah, but who owns the images? What message are you sending? What aspiration are you sending? This really, this speech, and I'm not going to go, well, well let, me, let me keep going. He says, very important for us to understand the meaning of this. What we have to deal with now is the bad faith of men who are using black history to hide themselves from history. One example of this is the large number of white liberals who are leaving the old range and riding away into the sunset of affirmative action. Another and equally instructive example is the wholesale invasion of the field of black heritage by bureaucrats and technocrats armed with the pulse of federal government and the witchcraft of the new technology. It's no accident that the National Science Foundation made one of the largest academic grants in history, $362,000, to a group of white scholars engaged in the process of explaining away and justifying black slavery. Now, let me pause. This doesn't mean everybody got a grant is a sellout. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is it ain't about you. It's about the structure that is determined to set the terms of how we think about ourselves. What he's really saying is, he's saying this to the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. He's saying, our black institutions, and that would include this one we're right here, Saturday we're in, 
Our black institutions have to be the source of our memory because our memory was never about telling history correctly. Our memory was primarily about using our memory to advance socially. And then he gets into the relationship between, in fact, he says, oh, he's here it is, here it is. He says, in our attempt to deal with this, we must not make the mistake of separating the exigencies of black bread, that money, from the exigencies of the black image. We must not, in other words, make the mistake of separating the exigencies of black cultural development from the exigencies of black political and economic development. Okay, we got all these great books now written by black people. Oxford University Press, yeah, okay. One World, okay, Valentine, okay. So how do it free us? It don't, it puts some money in your pocket and maybe it changes the mind of three people randomly. And guess what? We take the L's. And then he talks about how we are losing. This is 1976. He says a whole generation, we are losing tonight a whole generation of black people. And this fact, which is cultural, political, and economic at the same time constitutes, in my judgment, the gravest social crisis in the black community since the end of slavery. Then he goes through the statistics on uh, employment. He goes through the statistics on all that stuff. And then he says, no one interested in the future of black heritage, all you companies, Apple got a red, black, and green watch, which any of y'all buy, you should burn a hole in your whole wrist and your hand fall off. How in the hell you gonna have a red, black, and green watch when the red, black, and green was developed for self-determination? Unless you own Apple, and you if you buy an Apple watch, you severely miseducated. He says, for the great black, he says, this is the worst crisis we've had, perhaps in some ways, since the end of slavery. He says, for the great black depression, he's talking about the 70s, and the post-revolutionary trauma induced by the collapse of the freedom movement. This is a man, if you take any two-year period in Ebony Magazine during the 1960s, it's a period that any curriculum been put out by these white boys since. Lerone Bennett. And go back and look at our conversation we had about Lerone Bennett. He says, it had disastrous consequences in the field of black culture. We can see this, for example, in the tone and texture of the black community, in the relationships between men and women, in the aspiration or lack of aspirations of our youth. We have to note that there has been a massive loss of nerve, loss of confidence in the agency and power of black people. I'm talking about black individuals who uploaded a new TikTok video and made a lot of money, who went viral and then became some. No, we're not talking about individuals, we're talking about institutions. Do you believe a black institution can create curriculum and train students, black students and brown students and white students or do you believe that you got to somehow worm your way into one of these white foundations, white universities, white school districts, and then uh, white publishers? And somehow, if you can just whisper a little bit about blackness, you can somehow change it. Lerone Bennett is saying, you fool. You have no institutional memory. Do you understand that this was an all-out assault on black institutions? That's why they came and got your black behind to come write some black stuff so that they would then re reestablish as the authority? And that eventually, after you've written a few things, they're going to get the white boy in to write. And then you worship the real documentarian, Kim Burns. Then you worship the real historian. Understand, that's not true. Okay, somebody come in to question and answer before the end of February, and I want you to refute everything I'm saying, and then we can all watch how intellectual warfare really goes down. But the point is this. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just open, an open invitation. and ain't a challenge. Let me, let me end. He says, all of this, the crumbling of black popular culture, the use of black history to destroy black history, the black heritage field by adventurers and hustlers. All of this is happening at the very peak of the black heritage curve. And thus we have a paradox. The Roman Bennett says we have never been more triumphant 
and we have never been more vulnerable. He says we have never been more visible and we have never been more concealed. We have never been, been studied more and we have never been more misunderstood. He said there are two reasons for that. One is the systemic assault on our institutions and the other, this is where I'll end, is the powerlessness of black intellectuals. Now I'm using, I'm, I'm, I'm using intellectuals because he's in, in other words, like you say, Karen, this ain't you, this ain't me, this Lerone Bennett. In, in, a, in 1976, 26 years after Woodson made transition and many people he's talking to knew Woodson, his, his secretaries, the ladies who staffed the association office were still alive, they are present. Oh man, don't even get me started. I'm just gonna do this right quick and just for, just give me 10 seconds here to go to some of the pictures they have in here just so we can connect that to another conversation we had. Here is Lorraine, Lorraine Williams who is Howard's vice president and editor of the Journal of Negro History. She's sitting talking with the chairperson of the Bicentennial Commission for Asala, for the association. Didn't we talk about the great Helen Edmonds? When we talked about yeah. Wilmington, there they go. You talk about black women in history. Y'all start writing them history books today, talking about this is the first history of black women. Two things, stop disaggregating race, sex, and class, and then trying to readmit it in a theory of intersectionality. Because ain't nobody, everybody's intersectional in the lives they lead. But when you reduce it to the categories that we use to divide us and study us, you've already set us set yourselves up for what Jacob Carruthers calls intellectual warfare that you're going to lose. Read his little 1972 pamphlet, Science and Oppression. He says, this is what the West does. It creates this kind of orientation that causes you to slice and dice yourself with it at the top. So if you want to talk about black women's history, I get it. I agree. Go read Valethea Watkins Beatty on this subject. And what she will remind you of, as is in the work of Vivian Gordon and Marimba Ani and so many others, and Helen Edmonds, for that matter, Leroy Williams, we can start talking about history and not just women. Black women's history isn't a history to be written by black women on. Black community history is supposed to include everyone. If it doesn't, that's where our critique should lay. It's institutional history. So anyway, let me finish. Leroy Bennett says, black intellectuals. And I, I'm saying black intellectuals because he's saying black intellectuals. But I'm thinking about anybody who thinks and works. And this is from in a journal that is aimed at school teachers and school children, at least when Woodson started it. He says black intellectuals who are, by virtue of their powerlessness, unable to create or sustain institutional mechanisms for mediating between the generations and transmitting the accumulated lore of the past. So, hey, you're a brilliant individual. What you doing for the community? Well, we're, we're having a thing where we're giving away issues. That ain't what I'm talking about, Chief. These babies out here dying. Now, you're not in a black institution. That's fine. You're engaged in intellectual warfare. More power to you. Any way I can help, any way we can help, no problem. But these people here also don't promote black institutions and their friends got their foot on the neck of black institutions. In fact, they trying to carpet bomb the world with these white facing narratives to get your children to believe that their lives were all about the red, white, and blue. From the beginning, they came in chains and they said to themselves, eh, these chains are bad, but Africa was worse. And if I could just be like George Washington. Now you might get offended, but damn it, Think about the themes that you write at the conclusion of every history of African-Americans that you write. We trying to perfect the American Union. Boy, you better go out and talk to your cousin. They don't give a damn. You know what they trying to figure out? How I'm going to pay this damn light bill. But anyway, let me continue. Finally, he says, watch this. Lerone Bennett says, we've made a great deal of progress in this area, 
primarily because of the work of the association. That means translating from to generation to generation. He says, but it is still true that the media and mechanisms for transmitting black heritage in schools and communities are controlled by aliens, it's his word, and adversaries who feed on our transcendence and create massive short circuits in the flowing currents between the generations. And this fact and its corollary, a system of racism armed with the new power, it's 1976, the new power of technology and electronic gadgetry pose a challenge of historic proportions to the advocates of black heritage who must now enlarge their scope and finally create new paradigms which cannot be co-opted or debased. I ain't even read the whole thing. Now, tell me if he wasn't saying what you said. You, you didn't even know, Karen. And y'all, she didn't know that? <laughs> Hold that book up again, please. Yes, yes. Uh, this is the this is one of the bound edition. Well, can't nobody get a gift for uh, cost a thousand dollars? Well, actually, you probably won't be a fat, but you know, here's the problem though the Negro History Bulletin from oh, oh. I'm saying. All right. Negro History Bulletin from in fact, let me let me just yes, yeah, because y'all need to we need to read this whole thing. This is the Ron Bennett Jr.'s remarks. If you pause, you'll be able to read them. For yourself, that's page one. I'll come over here, Lerone Bennett Jr. Gotta do that. From Morehouse College out of Mississippi. Lerone Bennett Jr., the man for Ebony Magazine for two generations. Lerone Bennett Jr., this is the speech. Again, y'all can pause and look at it for yourselves. This is the speech. Your fingers. Oh, yeah, my bad, my bad, my bad. Oh, man, my bad. Oops, oops. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Right. Y'all can read it for yourselves because guess what? That's just some highlights. Yes. That's just some highlights. Now, the thing about it is most of these speeches are like two pages, two or three pages. These are excerpts. So there's a couple of things. And I want to be very, oh, 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 oh my bad. Let me stand up, Let me stand up so I can see. So, so where can we get the whole text from? Well, here's the challenge. And this is the real challenge. Now, once I do this, I got those two columns. Let me get the last column here. All right, thank and you. And then, and he welcome. All right, I'm about to sit down in five, four, three, two, one. Here's the challenge. Man, I'm sorry, Karen. This is, here's the challenge. People ask me all the time. They ask now. They always ask, even now. You know, you know where can you get all this stuff? I was very fortunate to be apprenticed by book people, book women and book men. So Unimalzac, Liberation Bookstore, used to be in Harlem, Malcolm X Boulevard, Charles Blocks, and I worked for Mr. Blocks in the Bibliophile. That's how I met Dorothy Porter. And so I knew from relatively young age, my early 20s really is when I got really, that you know, you need to own the materials. And so I've never had a job I mean, you know, where you know you get a whole lot of money but what little money i had i spent it on materials and when i was coming of age you could still get stuff now the internet has made it virtually impossible but now we're in another phase the phase of digitization this kind of thing and what you'll see is that there is a, a mafia when it comes to black knowledge they come like greeks bearing gifts can we digitize your entire papers? 
and then we will give you a copy. Okay. And you can keep the originals. They kind of do that too, right? Sometimes. Or you give us all your papers. We'll digitize them. We'll keep them here because we have the facilities to preserve them and give you digital access. Then you look up and some shit is behind a firewall. Or you have to be affiliated with the university or the institution. Oh, or you have to get a grant, which gives you access, unlimited access. And the rest of us can get a peek at something. Okay. See, if past is prelude, there's going to be a retreat behind these walls of our archive. And then now the archive will allow you, they will allow some of us to curate it. We've seen some incredible work in the last 20, 30 years by black folk who are in those archives, who have access to those institutions, but it's also reinforcing the power of those institutions. And now what we're also seeing, what we began seeing maybe even, you know, two generations ago, certainly seeing it in great now, you see a lot of non-black people who are students in these spaces, graduate students, undergraduate students, really plumbing the depth of those archives. And now they're the authorities. They're right in, I haven't mentioned, I mentioned a couple of the books as one on Lerone Bennett and Ebony Magazine that came out very recently. You know, find white scholar who's doing, I ain't got nothing against it, but in fact, I, I talked about it. When y'all go back and look at Lerone Bennett, y'all can see, you know, no problem. But that ain't what Lerone Bennett was doing. Let's be clear. So when you ask, where can you get it? The Association for the Study of uh, African-American Life and History publishes now called the African-American History Bulletin, the Afro-American History Bulletin. They still publish it. Theoretically, they should have every volume of every issue from the beginning of 1937 to now. I expect that they do. I know that there are libraries around the country, places like Emory University, which has Carter G. Woodson's personal library because they could write the check. Places perhaps like the University of Chicago, which took over the publication of the Journal of Afro-American History now, the Journal of Negro History, when Woodson started it, uh, started the year after he started the association in 1915 at the Wabash uh, Avenue branch of the Colored YMCA there in Chicago. Uh, but U of Chicago publishes it now and they have all the archives. And if you want to read any article in the Journal of Negro History, now the Journal of Afro-American History, you absolutely can do it online if you have a subscription to JSTOR the firewall, the paywall. So here's our conundrum. Let me end here with this, on this on this observations question, and where can we get it? My determination is to be one of those people in, this gen in, in our generation who goes out swinging with both fists, contributing to independent, physical black institutions. And I'm not talking about HBCUs. Okay, I'm entering a very delicate conversation here. The Moreland, uh, the Moreland Spengarn Collection at Howard University, one of the largest repositories of Africana, singly unique in the world. Very important. Give stuff to them. Absolutely. Same thing with uh, my friends and, and brothers and sisters down there at Atlanta University in the Woodruff Library, the collective archive of the Atlanta University Center. Same thing at, at Wilberforce, for example. Wilberforce, which is where the bust of Richard Allen that was uh, sculpted by the great sculptress Edmonia Lewis for the 1976, I'm sorry, 1876 centennial of the United States that was held in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's where the Richard Allen bust was. Apparently they uh, they contracted her to, to build a, a monument to Richard Allen that never made it to Philadelphia. The only thing that survives from it is the bust and the bust was at Wilberforce for years. They didn't know it was the Richard Allen bust that Monia Lewis did. Then when they got it, I said, oh my God, it's the bust. They then gave it to 
Mother Bethel AME Church. And we didn't even talk about, in fact, we'll talk about that maybe next week we'll get into this. I'll talk about 1876 because there are articles in the Negro History Bulletin that talk about what happened at the 100th anniversary of the celebration of the United States independence and how black people fought an intellectual war, not only to be included, but to define their experience on their own terms. And they published it in the Negro History Bulletin. And the reason I bring it up is because we have yet to get to the 1776 commission. But what you'll see is we answered the 1776 commission in 1876, 100 years after the revolution, and they wrote it up in the Negro History Bulletin. So if you want to read any of this stuff, Asala, here's the, here's the thing. Asala, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, seems to me would have the intellectual property rights to make to digitize all this. Here's the challenge. I don't trust any black institution or any white facing black folk who are unclear about what Lerone Bennett Jr. is telling us. Meaning this isn't to be accessed so that somebody, some well-meaning black scholar can spin the hell out of it and end up with an American flag over the top of it. Child. See, the, the intellectual war now is a war of institutions. This is what Lerone Bennett is saying. So, uh, like I said, I really need to uh, wrap this up because, again, a lot of this conversation, you know, I haven't spent the last 30, almost 35 years being broke so that this ends up in Emory or Howard, for that matter. Now, our things have to be somewhere not only we can trust but where a six-year-old girl can walk in there and say you know i want to write a children's book and a sister takes her to the stacks with the shelves of black children's book that go back to the 19th century and say why don't you sit here for an afternoon and just read through some of this stuff i'm gonna be over here working but uh and here you know you you got your phone and everything and you know why don't you leave the phone with me and we got a whole bank of computers but here's a pad and a pencil why don't you just sketch out some ideas? Just, you know, I know, I know you used to have it. I know you think, no, you, I'm going to put your phone where you can see it. But I want you to sit at the table. Just sit here. Trust me. Just sit here. In fact, in fact, I'm not even going to, um, I'm, I'm going to make it easy for you. I'm going to start with a little book. Remember we talked about James Weldon Johnson and the Black National Anthem? Yes. <laughs> this is a little children's book on James Weldon Johnson. Guess who wrote it? Ophelia Settle Egypt. Mm. Ophelia Settle Egypt, a brilliant sister scholar. Look, that's a great picture of the Johnson brothers. It's about around the age when they wrote it, right? So the reason I bring her up is because we didn't even get into this. This is a teaser for next week, maybe. When we go to the 1876 thing that was written up in the Negro History Bulletin, one of the conversations they're having is written by a brother who we will trace back and used to bring up Ophelia Egypt, uh, bring up um, Lawrence Reddick, who is a very important scholar. In fact, there's a new book on Lawrence Reddick out. Again, if you got access to the archives of our people's stuff, Ed Vrabel, not black. The scholar in the struggle, Lawrence Reddick's Cross Crusade for Black History and Black. Lawrence Reddick wrote the first biography of Martin Luther King and uh, Crusader Without Violence. And he was a professor at Alabama State College. And he was let go 
by the president of Alabama State College. No, actually he wasn't. He resigned before. He was on the same faculty as Joanne Robinson, who helped lead the Montgomery bus boycott. But there in Montgomery, the governor of Alabama told the president of Alabama State, them Negroes got to go. And we heard that uh, Reddick was a communist anyway, because they already had FBI file on them open, and they then just pursued it. But my point is that Reddick had been a, a, a student at Fisk, and Reddick worked with Ophelia Egypt and the guy who was supervising it, Charles Johnson, and Miss Ophelia Settle Egypt. This is the actual document, y'all. This is the actual document. We talked about it back this summer. We talked about slave testimony. This is social science source documents number one, the unwritten history of slavery, autobiographical accounts of Negro ex-slaves, and the sister. This is actually the type. I don't really like to handle this a lot. This one I'm joining that I kind of, you know, some of this stuff I just kept, I keep out, I keep and I don't really touch it much. But this is important because what you've done, Karen, what you've done is allow for some, some sharing. And we need to see this again. These interviews mm. were conducted by Mrs. Ophelia Settle Egypt. She went out in 1930 and she interviewed formerly enslaved Africans in Tennessee and Kentucky. Kentucky. Anyway, the point, <laughs> I'm saying, but now you go to that little imaginary room I'm talking about, which must become a reality, which will then follow in the the spirit of Charmaine Hollins, who was the children's librarian, one of the children's librarians in Chicago, who were following the lines of Miss Dorothy Porter, who were following the lines of those black women children's books historians. By the way, there's a name we may know now. Hopefully, most or more of us know. She started one of her earliest jobs was working at the Carter G. Woodson Library. I think it was the Carter Woodson Library Children's Division. Uh, then she moved, I think, to Baltimore, the uh, Enid Pratt Free Library. And I forget where she works now. Um, oh, wait, that's right. She's the librarian of Congress. Understand, these are children's librarians. <laughs> you understand? So when you see the librarian of Congress, you're looking at a black woman who is a children's librarian. And so get that little girl, give her a children's book, pad and paper, let her play around in it. But the important thing is she will leave there not only with the beginnings of maybe reading her whole book, sitting there, thinking through things or keep coming back. She will recognize that that type of intellectual work does not aspire to go to the Beinecke Library at Yale, does not aspire to sit in the great hallowed halls of the University of Chicago. No, she's trying to get to an HBCU. But more importantly, she understands that the great validation for me will be if what I do helps us advance as a group. And it came out of a black institution that otherwise you read these books for fun because white people still got their foot on your neck. Not your neck. You, you made a nice little piece, piece of change. But the rest of us. <laughs> This, this process is about the word becoming flesh. Yes. We're talking, um, the word becomes flesh. That's what this means, right? Like, we will never lose it as long as each person who is ingesting this then passes it along in many different ways, and the word becomes flesh. And we live, we embody the words of Lerone Bennett and Carter G. Woodson and Ophelia, Egypt, uh, Settle Egypt. We embody mm. it, right? You know what, Karen? And don't 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 move the screen. I just want I I heard how you said that. Hey, y'all get ready because I think we probably gonna hurt hear something about Ophelia. <laughs> I mean, you know, these are things that weren't taught to me. Me so, neither. Me so, neither. You know, you, you live in my hometown. I'm from Nashville, right? 
And then that whole Kentucky thing keeps coming back because Kentucky right now, as I mentioned, is like the worst in every category, just about in the bottom five in all of these categories. But there's something really spiritual about Kentucky, something really spiritual about Tulsa, something really spiritual about uh, Ohio, you know, as a base of black people. And there's, you know, almost the way Haiti's punished, having the audacity, you know, to be free. I'm thinking something happened in Kentucky with black people. That they're being punished now. Man, you really got me thinking about. It. We talked about Henry Bibb. We yeah. did Whitney Young. We keep coming back to Kentucky. Something happened there. <laughs> yeah, no. All right. Uh, Q and A portion. Uh, and thank you. Everybody comes up. This isn't like that. Caution, Nathan. All right, let's bring this brother in. Uh, and uh, he came in first, so we're gonna bring him in first. And he's from my mama's hometown, my grandmama's hometown. Augusta. Augusta, GA. Uh, <laughs> South Carolina, Stu. Yeah, yeah, that, it is your people right there, huh? The birthplace of Morehouse. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we are even. Okay, are we even? We good? Yeah, we're good. We're good. Is that I, a little bit better? I welcome. Is that is that a little bit better? Yeah, that's better. Thank you. Welcome. Hey, what's up, y'all? Hey, hey. Bro, how you feel? Man, I'm good. My son over here sleep right now, and um, I got the camera on him right now, and so he he's starting to like. Wooga a little bit, so but I'm good over here. How old is he? Two and a half years old. That's a blessing, brother. He's the one yeah. that's gonna win the war. We we fighting so he can plant the victory flag. What's that's the what's true. the C course, dude? Uh Clemson. Clemson. I did my undergraduate work at Clemson. Oh yeah, I've been to Death Valley before, man. Not I, I must confess, I did spit on that rock, but numbers. <laughs> hey, I, there's hey, a new there's a new history of blacks at Clemson. I don't know if you've seen it. I got it around here somewhere. Y'all fight the good fight, man. Much respect to black folk that came out of Clemson with a degree. Yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> they bring you in there to work to work on the field. Now them degree. Hey, that's real. That's <laughs> real. I play I play football there too. So you talking Did about you play? Yeah, yeah. You talking about, you know, you you're talking about that double struggle, you know, of you know, being a being an athlete, but also, you know, being black at Clemson as well and and, and trying, you know, to Post post Clemson and getting into the real world um, and making sense of so much that's happening in the real world. Dude, you know, someone who plays geez. well. You a son of South Carolina? Oh, I'm 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 straight up from the the white dirt. <laughs> I'm straight up from the right the white dirt. We're a with a a with a uh with the best food at the gas station. I'm talking about the little come on boy, come on, uh, and the uh, three piece chicken tender. Come on boy, Orange Fanta. Hey man, <laughs> my man, my man Cedric Miles, the brother who um, you've been watching, who's in Brazil right now. He yeah. from he from Venezuela, and uh, uh, my man Sam Livingston in Morehouse. He from right around the corner. These cats is South Carolina. You brothers, man. And again, clips. Did, did they? Did, did you get a chance to learn, or you may have known before you went? about how Clemson University is on the site of old plantation, how you got enslaved Africans buried on the... Yeah, 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 yeah. If you don't mind sharing some of that yeah, with yeah. So, like, My story is a little bit interesting, though, because, because like, you know, being somebody who played football at Clemson, you know, like a lot of young Black athletes in this moment, and even, you know, I went in 2010, you know, you you have to deal with, you know, what, we, what, we're, what we're dealing with is, you know, young Black dudes coming from the South, from 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 rural South Carolina who just want to make it. And you know, my mom and my dad is a baby of the fifties and sixties, baby of the black power movement. Uh, really? Black country life. Yes, sir. Uh, not in black Pentecostals, but then, you know, you also got, you know, we, we're raised in a generation of young black, for, I'm 20, I'm 28, better be 29, 
But we were raised in like, you know, the, the, the way you make it, you know, you put your head down, you kind of do what you got to do. You go to school, you go to class, you play your sports. Uh, and it was it was really William C. Roden who wrote that joint, uh, the 40 million, 40 million oh, dollars. Yeah, I, I know Bill Roden is good brother, man. Good friend. Yeah, yeah Bill Roden. He had, that, he had that line in that joint where he was talking about, you know, college coaches and so many college coaches, you know, care about our black bodies, but don't really, you know, care about training our black minds or connecting us to our history and to our people. And so, like, I, I had to learn about, you know, and there go my son right now. I had to learn. I had to learn about, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the formerly enslaved being buried there. You know, I, I just learned that I want to say last year. Really? Because um, they don't teach it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you have I mean, you have you have black folk that's there and that's, you know, in, 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 in departments that's really, you yeah. know, trying to trying to really train us and. And, you know, trying to get us to, to kind of get involved and get engaged intellectually uh, and historically with being connected to our people and understanding, you know, that that, that the bodies that's beneath the surface are as important as the body that's up in uh, up on the field and in the classrooms. And so, you know, you have those those people who are there who are trying. But then, you, I mean, at, at a predominantly white institution, you got the power of whiteness as well. You're working against, you know, the power of whiteness. But then you also kind of have that. You know, that dynamic of a certain type of blackness that, you know, is Booker T, you know, that the boys would say. Oh, you know, no question. Oh, no question. Just, who just is just. And so. No question. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I had to learn about that joint a little bit late. But when I when I learned, you know, that was that was it. That was yeah. it. Did you have. Did you have. A, uh, there he is. <laughs> what's up, man? Say what's good. Say what's up. Hey, brother, what's going What's your name? Say Hi. Jake, King? <laughs> Jake, Jake? No. No, nah, his name Asa. <laughs> Wait, his name is Asa? Yeah. Your name is Asa? Yeah. No way. Why'd yeah. you name him Asa? Why, why, why is your name Asa, brother? Man, I, I I mean I love the name Asa, but then also, you know, you know, I'm 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 a Christian as well, so I'm in seminary. So a lot, lot my life is in the Bible in, in the sacred text. And so man, I read the story of King Asa in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and you know, I was just so intrigued by his kind of deep affinity for his people and his deep love for his people, um, or, or whatnot, kind of his deep love for God and, and really, you know, trying to, trying to really see some things through. And so, I I, I, you know, in some sense, I, I felt like naming, naming is in some sense prophetic. I feel like naming oh, it is, brother. allows us to live up to something and live out something that came before us. And so brother. I, I named him Asa because I wanted him to live up and live out something. Baba. And let me tell you something, young young Asa. Let me tell you something. I'm saying, I'm telling your father, really, and we're telling the world. He didn't already told the world. You're telling the world with your name. One of the most powerful educators, and I know you know this, too. One of the most powerful educators, most powerful teachers I ever had, and many of us ever had, is a brother from Texas. His name was Asa. His name was Asa Hilliard III. Wow. His mother, prophetess in the Pentecostal tradition. Hey, I'm Pentecostal. <laughs> Come on, brother. This is what I'm saying. I'm going with you. I'm going with you. <laughs> one, of, one of his closest friends, in fact, collaborators, they're both ancestors now, was a brother who was on South Carolina public television. His name was Lister Velt Middleton. Wow. Lister Velt, and you can go on YouTube and watch this. You can watch the interviews between Asa Hilliard and Lister Velt, who had a show called For the People. Wow. South Carolina public television. You can see Asa. Asa can watch Asa breaking yeah. down Egypt, breaking down the history. And I'll end with this. We just had a conference, brother Bernard Gallman, 
Mike Harriet, who you see here, he's from South Carolina. Oh, y'all, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. South Carolina got him now. Y'all got the cats, man. But hey, South Carolina got him. Brother, but when I tell you that that show that came out of South Carolina went around the country, that show changed. <laughs> Listerville Middleton in South Carolina was the only one to sit down and have long interviews with Shea Conta Joe when he came to the United States. But those conversations between Listerville and Asa Hilliard, Mm. Young Asa, brother. Yeah, he gonna live up to that. You don't put a name on that cat, man. Wow! Come on, man. Man. Yeah, beautiful. So, um, did you have a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Daddy duty, because I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. should not be contained. Hey, really. <laughs> so, so I'm at uh, I'm at Emory University right now. Oh, you're Emory? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm at the Divinity School at Emory, and uh, I'm taking a. Uh, Black literature class with uh, Dr. Michelle Wright. Yes. Um, in 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 uh, the English department of Black Studies. Yes. And she's had us deep in the boys right now uh, or whatnot. And I'm doing a little uh, teaching on the boys next week. And oh, okay. I, you know, and and one of the things, man, I'm I'm wondering, you know, what does it mean in, in some sense? You know, what does it mean for us? We're really two part question. You know, what does it mean for us to recover? you know, a deep love and conversation with and listening to black text, but also particularly listening to the boys, souls of black folk and reading of the meaning of progress in the post-Trump society. Ooh, okay, real quick. I know that's loaded. I know that's loaded. No, 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 That's a lot. I'm thinking Um, this is the Michelle Wright that wrote uh, The Physics of Blackness, I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah Physics of Blackness. I think, and I forget the name of her first book because I got them both around here somewhere. You know, I think when we think of Du Bois and as you're working through Du Bois, and like you say, Du Bois puts those essays together, many of which, as you know, are published other places. In 1903, puts that Souls of Black Folk together. And much of it is, is in conversation with white publics. So, you know, the whole fascination, for example, with double consciousness. And Du Bois lives another 60 years. The idea is that Du Bois, the Du Bois that is most useful in the conversations we've had now, at least in white-facing conversations, is the Du Bois that they freeze in, two, in 1903. The double consciousness idea. The idea, you know, what does it mean on the meaning of progress, as you say? Du Bois is always trying to write the history of Africans in the world and whatever he's writing. So it don't matter what he's writing, he's going to start with Africa. And except souls of Black folk, he's grounding it in the sorrow songs. He's grounding it in the, the experiences of African people. Um, my favorite chapter in souls of Black folk is really the one on Alexander Cromel. You know, because he's really, it's almost like you see him imagining the kind of scholar he wants to be. But I bring that up to say this. As we're working through Du Bois, it seems to me that souls has to be read and all parts of souls in a wider context of who Du Bois is. For example, and I just happen to have these here because every day I've been like tweeting out a book cover and maybe a little description just during February. This is a book that he wrote in 1939. I'm handling it gingerly because this is actually a 30, 1939 copy. It's called Black Folk Then and Now, an essay in the history and sociology of the Negro race by Du Bois. At this time, he's at HBCU. He's teaching at Atlanta University. This is a book, by the way, that inspires a man who was inspired by Du Bois and instructed by many in that Du Bois generation to uh, write the last book he would write in a long and storied career. That's the great St. Clair Drake. This is volume one and two of Black Folk Here and There. He says, I did this with Du Bois in mind. And if you don't mind, just indulge me for a second. I'm gonna go to the first page of Black Folk 
uh, here and there. And he says, the purpose of this project is to carry out an analysis of values and symbols that have emerged within black communities in the diaspora and to relate them to the coping process at various periods in history and in diverse places where ec ecological and economic concerns present quite different options. He says, um, since black communities have been and are relatively powerless, their cultural products are constantly being co-opted for ends other than those they set for themselves. How does that tie to on the meaning of progress? How does that tie to souls of black folk? And how does that inform our thinking about Du Bois? And I really would like to hear how you, if you can record it and, and email me, so I would love to hear your conversation that you're going to have next week. I think it does this. The white-facing Du Bois, and by the way, there's a brand new book about Du Bois. This is the latest one, Elvira Bassage. I got this from, uh, from my man, uh, Joe last night too. The white facing Du Bois is different than the black facing one. I think white facing Du Bois is useful to those institutions outside of our community, our communities, when it comes to creating this idea of blackness as other. Other than what? Other than human. And then once you framed us as other than human, all the scholarship goes in the direction of how we fought our way into humanity, how we overflowed the boundaries of otherness, how we create black as a multi-directional overflowing concept that can't quite be defined in any one way. So therefore, in doing that, it nothing becomes everything. All right, I get it. But what we really, I think, need to be focusing on with Du Bois is how Du Bois is fighting to create some space for us to stand in the world and speak our truth to the world. So finally, I would say, I would place Souls of Black Folk in conversation with his 1897 speech that he gives at the American Negro Academy, uh, The Conservation of Races, and then maybe put it between 1897, The Conservation of Races, and 1915, the same year the Woodson starts uh, the um, association, a little book he published, which was the first in the Home Studies series. I wish I had uh, I know I have, I have actually the original. It's called The Negro. Y'all can get a very cheap copy of that. I mean, Dover reprinted, I think. The Negro, where he tries his, it's his first attempt to write a world history of black folk that includes black Americans. And he goes on the rest of his life on that quest, the world in Africa, 1847. That's to say 1939, black folk um, then and now. Souls, can, souls must be read in the arc of Du Bois's intellectual work. And for those who would say that uh, well, okay, later Du Bois, maybe, no, go earlier too. Go to 1897. He'd been thinking about this actually since he was a kid, you know, since he was at Fisk when he gives the speech, Jefferson Davis as representative of civilization. Before that, when he's writing for the New York age, when he's still in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, Du Bois always overflows the American construct and the race construct and souls should be read, not excised from that longer arc of work but placed in that context. I mean, that's a lot to do between now. When, when are you, uh, when you got to give the talk, brother? Oh, you, you muted. Okay, there we go, there we go. Uh, next week, next week, Dr. Dr. Wright is having me uh, lecture next week. So I'm a graduate student, but she's let me take, uh, they're letting me take her class because my work, my, my thesis is going to be on uh, black literature and black theology and black embodiment. Really? So yeah, so they're letting me kind of take, they're letting me take, um, a class class at the university, and so it'll be it'll be next week. Uh, and I'm talking about I'll be talking about the boys. Um, and uh, man, there's a really good book by Kevin Kwashi. Uh, that joint, the sovereignty of quiet. 
Yes. Oh my yes. God. Yes. So so I'm <laughs> absolutely. Yo. Oh my goodness. So I'll be it. I'll, it'll be next next Wednesday uh, where uh, I'll be using this joint, the uh, the Norton joint. Oh yeah, the Norton. Yeah, no yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, with the uh, with the essays in it, with the modern criticism in it. Yes. And, uh, using uh, Kwashi's joint to talk about the boys and uh, beauty, uh, and this kind of black what Kwashi talks about black life beyond you know public performance of blackness and you know black people in pain because like black history. You know, like black kids, if you indulge me for a moment, man, like no, 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 this is this is what I'm talking about. This is what we do, man. Yes, yeah, please. yeah, yeah. So, like, like you know, like black history. I was I was just talking about this on social media uh this week. It's like, you know, black history month, you know, is not talking about, you know, it's it's, it's not asking ourselves, you know, how can we just learn the names of black people and remember the names of black people, man. It's really talking about, you know, how can we be connected to a deeper and longer standing tradition. Uh, that looks at and embraces black life beyond the public logics of whiteness and white supremacy or right. resistance to it uh, right. or whatnot, or black people just simply in performance of a certain type of blackness uh, that that in some sense is consumptuous, uh, that 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 is like in some sense like a certain type of blackness that people say, oh, that's our idea of blackness. That's what blackness truly is. But it's like really like looking at looking at black folk like, like that joint uh when 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 the boys was writing out black about Josie like what does it mean to look at black life from the perspective of Ben and Josie and Reuben and the intimacy and the interior and the beauty of that other world that that the boys is talking about uh, or whatnot because that's the power of black life it's, it's beyond the white gaze it's beyond the white well, see, see, that's the thing. You know, it's interesting you say that because, well, a couple of things. Well, I'll ask you the second one first. Uh, second one, I'll ask that second. That Josie chapter, man, of course, as we know, Du Bois is going out to teach. Yes. I mean, he's the undergrad. <laughs> like, yeah. so, you know, what happens to Josie as he as he kind of ends? You know, he says, you know, and they just kind of disappear, right? So, yeah. you know, Holly Green, my friend Holly Green, the filmmaker, he often says, if I were making a film about uh, Souls of Black Folk, I would focus on Josie. Yes. And what I would do is I would have Du Bois return to that Tennessee Valley mm. like 30, 40 years after. Mm. And I would have him find them mm. and talk because the assumption when we leave souls, they disappear from history to the point you're raising. And so right. in some ways, blackness becomes a floating signifier mm. for us to imagine absent the lived experiences of black people. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? So, 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 for example, I get, and this is the second piece, now be quiet. You there in, in ATL, or do you commute? How you? Yeah, doing? yeah, yeah. I bounce, I bounce up to Atlanta. So okay, I'm, cool, cool. I'm the ministry man. I'm locked down. I'm, my wife is in the Air Force. So I'm locked down in the oh, gun. Man, what's your, yeah, I, can't, I can't move. So I got to drive up to the A. I got to take 20. So this is what we got to do, man. Karen, Karen got to, we, we got to put your, I understand, but you got to put your email in because I don't know if you've run into this brother yet. And with this plague, probably not, but there's a cat over at, Clark, because hmm. when I, every time I hear, you know, I, when, when the cats I knew in Emory, Lawrence Jackson, and all them, you know, Larry, Larry's at we went to school together, Ohio State. He's at uh, he's at John Hopkins now. But I, I went, I came down. I think Leslie Harrison and was down there. Um, Dolores Aldridge hadn't yet retired. I mean, the old school Emory cats, and of course Randy Burkett and them, because they got all our black stuff up here in Emory's library. But and then the brother made transition. The guy who was over arch archives, the brother had come. Hmm. But um, there was a brother. What's his name? Thee. Oh. Is he still over in theology? Who y'all got black over there? <laughs> like I, Smith, I think I forget. I mean, because one of my friends, Rosalind Satchel, uh, got her uh, graduate degree in divinity from Emory. She's got a JD too from there. She went to Howard undergrad. But but anyway, 
who's black there? I mean, there's a there's a few black. I mean, there's a lot of black people at Emory. This is, this is, I mean, I mean, if I mean if y'all in Candler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is my first year. This is my first year at Candler. So I've taken. So I I tell you who I've taken. Who's back? You got Dr. Nicole Phillips. You have, um, you have Dr. Marla Frederick. I'm actually in Dr. Marla Frederick class okay. this semester. Uh, black institutions then and now. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, she's she studying. Huh? What y'all studying? What y'all using? Uh, we we on well we we just we just finished uh the Black Church and African American experience. Oh yeah, Sierra Lincoln. No first three chapters. We did the first three chapters of that. Yeah. Then we're doing uh this this little baby joint. Um, Frank Frazier and Sierra Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sierra Lincoln joint. Then we'll we'll move over to um this joint on black on the black university. Oh my man, Bobby Lovett. Yeah, was my yeah, teacher, yeah. man. He was the dean of arts and sciences at Tennessee State. He was the history department. I Word. Was, yeah, yeah. Oh, that Mercy University Press. I'm yeah, and we'll do that. We'll do this one. We'll do black. Oh, yeah, university. yeah. Julia Walker, no question. Okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. Then we got uh Then we got um. Then we doing uh the new joint, the color of money. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, Karen yeah. Friend. Yeah. If you ever seen the interview they did, that uh -huh. she he had she had her on the show. Oh okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. having to go back and, no. and check out that. Now, Kayla got black folk now. That's a lot of black black teachers that okay. I'm learning yeah. people. So forgive me for anybody who's at Candler School yeah. of Theology for not naming your name. If right. you look at this one, forgive me, chalk it up to me being no, 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 no. To the game. You got the, you know, and, and the play here. No reason I ask is because you know the idea of black institutions is, of course, as we were we were hearing Lerone Bennett saying, so important. There was a time when, of course. You would have been an ITC. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you know, between that Coca-Cola money, in fact, I used to kid Larry and them. I say, man, they should rename Emory Coca-Cola University. Man, all the money. I mean, this money came out the back. So you know, so so talk about the Philippines and the Caribbean, but that's a whole nother story for another day. But at at this at the AUC now, there's a brother named Daniel Black, Dr. Mm -hmm. Daniel Black, who is uh, he has PhD in African Studies, but he's a novelist and he has something called Ndugu and Nzinga. It's kind of a rites of passage thing. He fuses it all together. It would be very interesting. I mean, I'll connect y'all. You know, so you can. But I love to hear the two of y'all having a concept, a conversation around Du Bois, spirituality, institution building, and how we reconnect. Because it seems to me that all these loops reinforce white institutions. So even if. Yeah, The Coming. He wrote a book called The Coming. In fact, I use it for my intro class. He's got a number of books. They tell me of a home. Actually, this here. He's not. Um, oh, and one other brother I mentioned. I don't know if you've run across him. They may have talked about him. This is my buddy. He worked at, he went to uh, Norfolk State, but he cycled through Brown. He's been at Winston-Salem State. He's now at Winston, uh, at uh, Wake Forest. Corey Walker. Walker. Yeah, that's my yeah, man, yeah, man. Corey, yeah, that's my brother, man. Hey, Corey, Corey that dude now. He that now, dude. Corey is that dude. You already know. <laughs> so have you have you ever had a chance to uh, interact with him, have a conversation with him? Nah, 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 nah. And let me go back. Let me go back. Dr. Yeah. Robert Franklin is my advisor at Emory. So I got, I, got, I got a name, Dr. Franklin. You got oh, Dr. yeah, you got a name. That's the black institution. There you go. Huh? There you, you go. go. Dr. You got you got Dr. Walter Fluka. You got no Somebody send me an email. You naming the elders now. In all fact, right. in fact, I know Karen gonna get in and bring us. Yeah, oh, I see. Right, you already know. You already know. All right. Uh yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll your email in the chat privately. I will. I, will. I just want to thank you. And I think it's ironic. I didn't know that you played football. Super Bowl Sunday. We didn't mention it because I'm not watching football. No. Uh, but I just I just thought that was ironic that you come in with that football background on Super Bowl Sunday. We How about that? And graduated from Clemson. 
know. Isn't that amazing? Hey, man, I know. I know. We got to go. And Karen, we gonna we gonna move. I, let me ask you, Chris, a quick question, Stu. The brothers and sisters who play for Clemson. I'm assuming. Let's just keep it with football. Yeah, what's up? How many of those? How many of those cats followed you into getting a degree, man? Would you say? Ooh, ooh, that's tough. I can only speak for football. Um, yeah, yeah, that's why I say that. Yeah, I, I only speak for football, man. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know who went into this area, you know, of I, I don't know of any other of my teammates who went into doing, you know, graduate study work, particularly, you know. Well, even well not even graduate study. How many graduated? What's the graduation rate? Oh no, nah, we got a hey, we, we got a pretty good graduation right now. now that's, that's what I want. We get on through. We get on. We like hey, we black brothers get on through. We we get them. We get them degrees now. We that's gonna, what, that's we, what we, I want to be. You know, our, our graduation rate at Clemson. I want to say, you know, it was like ninety eight percent. Oh yeah, I think it was like ninety eight. That's nice. Right. Yeah, that's that's more than nice. Hey brother, thank you for that, man. Let these young cats understand if they're gonna work you, you work them. That's right. <laughs> That's right, get that degree. Stu, we're gonna be talking, bro. Hey, we'll connect. We'll connect. I look forward to it. See you soon. All right, let's let's bring wow. in. Yeah, this is amazing. Always every week. I don't know. It's all very random, as you know. Oh, or, or maybe not so. We just don't know. <laughs> That's true. Let me change my language. It's not random, it's ordinary. No. No. The word is becoming flesh. Let me uh yeah, the word is becoming in. flesh. Wow. Caleb, Caleb from Chicago. No. Hello. Thank y'all for having me. Um, I'm Caleb from Chicago. I uh, attend the Jacob Carruthers Center um, of Inner Studies uh, at NEIU. Yeah. Oh, no, we know each other then. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, my, I just want to appreciate all like uh, your weaving of history and knowledge. Um, Mama Hunter and um, what y'all doing is just amazing. And as like, I'm 19, so I'm a freshman now. So um, I, I've been able to do some things. I'm an organizer in Chicago and I've been doing that since I was 12 and I got involved in that. And then I took a year off um, from this school, Village Leadership Academy, founded by black women um, who saw a need for uh, independent uh, social justice founded um, school, base school, um, and they, started a school, a daycare, led into a school. Um, and then after eighth grade, I took a year off, a gap year, and I studied organizing, community organizing, got to travel to Haiti. Um, but I sat in du, du Bois' house in Accra, yes, um, been able to uh, uh, practice Capoeira in Salvador Bahia. Uh, so, so this school, is just amazing and just like how they've opened my eyes. But then particularly uh, me being able to travel all across the world, do community work, uh, sit at the feet of elders and folks doing the work. What's amazing is that you still learn, right? So like I, I, I you still are in the process of, of always uh, inter, uh, interweaving the, the stories, but also that to resistance and how we move forward. Um, and my question today is really about young people, um, because that's who I do, my peers, uh, who I do most of my work with. Um, and, I, and I have a question about how do we teach the next generation the deep work of, of studying and the deep work of reading? Um, I think about Sankofa, 
Um, and that principle of like, you can't, you always talk about movement and memory. You can't move forward if you don't even know anything, right? Um, and, and that just like the beak of the bird at its tail um, so that it can move forward. So um, what you're seeing now, y'all hit on this today about branded activism, the consumer, uh, the consumption of and capitalization off of blackness, right? Um, yes. How it is now in the efforts of capitalism and um, white supremacy to allow for blackness to be um, consumed in this way and our resistance, right? You have to be woke now. Um, you use social media and you put out all of these views that you think are new and you haven't even read. So I have a question about that of like um, looking at the uh, legacy of our ancestors, Woodson and Du Bois and Cooper and all of them. Um, I think a lot of the time we talk about their work about uh, in a way that's we, we brand them, right? Du Bois and the soul of black folk. And, and I feel like a lot of their work wasn't that they wanted to do it, that they needed to do it, right? So talking a little, a little bit about the difference of the work that we wanna do and the work that we need to do in our community. And what I'm seeing now from my generation is, is that we wanna do this. We wanna create this uh, commission um, to advise uh, the president uh, with black young people. We wanna do this, we wanna do this, but is that needed? And what is needed in our, uh, in our work? Um, so yeah, that, and yeah, I, I could keep going on for days, but I- No, really no, no, let's, 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 no, I don't, 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 don't go anywhere. First, I mean, because I want us to. First of all, let me just say, for at the onset, well, not the onset, you started. So let me just contribute, particularly for everyone listening. I know it's had this effect on me. You've already answered it by demonstrating with your life journey. I mean, at 19, brother, I'm just saying, and I think that speaks to the importance of institutions. When you start talking about, you know, leadership academy, you start talking about these sisters, you're talking about institution builders, and I assume you're a native Chicagoan. Yes. Okay, so, so what you say? I'm from the west side. I'm west from side, I'm about to say, I know you had to make a distinction, right? <laughs> right, where Dr. King came and uh, yeah, all of that. Yeah, yes, I'm, sir. Yes, sir. He said, He said, Oh, I understand that. It's this uh, the way these young people are living. He said, Dr. King said, We moved into these uh, housing projects, and within a week, my son was talking back to me, and I realized <laughs> it's because we all living on top of each other. He can't even go outside no more. Right, <laughs> so, right. so, don't be blaming black people, you know, when you when you trap them in a certain condition you would go crazy too so yeah. and the the strength is of course we didn't go crazy so i mean so but i think um you know and i think we probably all know this everybody who's in the conversation we're having now and then the two of us you know where we're from and our communities produce us whether we recognize it or not and so i know for me for example chicago mm. is one of the centers of my own development and in fact it was a year ago last week on the 31st that we would i was there at the center with uh in fact it, was, it may have been the last public i think it was the last big public uh appearance and speech and conversation that conrad Worrell had who used to direct the center yeah god know. rest his soul yeah yeah i say man i say that's that uh, man baba conrad no question in fact um his folks are finishing up his memoir they're going to get that together soon i think muriel Baller, uh uh, Mama Ife Carruthers, who is, of course, the widow of Jacob Carruthers. Mm. They're working on getting it together, his final kind of book, um, memoir of, of sorts. Um, but Chicago, in terms of Black institutions and independent institution building, it's clear, man, from everything, your energy, the words you give, the fact you call uh, Professor Hunter Mama, uh, Mama Karen, 
you came through the African <laughs> institutions, brother. <laughs> so do you um do you interact at all with uh any of the folks like uh Baba Haki, Mama Safisha and them? I know. Um, so because of the pandemic, it's, it's just my second semester oh, yeah. here. Um, but I've I've taken uh, Dr. Ben uh, Levy. Um, oh, that's my man, man. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I took two classes: uh, uh, the African American Studies uh, one, the intro to that. But then I'm taking ethics with him now, so that's a whole another world. But let, let me ask you, Caleb has 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 he at all introduced his uh, gift and facility in language? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but, yeah. Joseph, for y'all don't know, Joseph Ben Levy is one of the earliest cats to master the deep study of Egyptian hieroglyphs. Yeah, I have his dissertation and I can't even oh. read that. I'm like, <laughs> uh, can you sit down <laughs> with me to go through this? But hey, man, um, so they got, well, you know what's going on now. Ask Ben Levy, man. You talk to they got to get you in KI, man. Okay. We need you in the Comedic Institute. Yes, <laughs> I'm a, I got to. I got to show. I'm ready for KI. No, no, no. no. You ready? Trust me, because and that's part of it too. When you ask the question, and and I appreciate the question, I also appreciate it because I I hear it and experience it as less of a question than as a, a contribution to a collective answering of that question. We build institutions literally life to life, so. Um, in a white space like an Emory or a Clemson, we heard that with Brother Stu. He found the black people. He found the black spaces, and, and we build that essay. The, the the destination is where you are. You know, to come out of African-centered K-12 education, and this this is you know, it's not unique to Chicago, but Chicago is one of the few places in the country where you can sustain that, which means there's always going to be a fight to come out of a K-12 institution and then to go into a place like the Jacob Carruthers Center for Inner City Studies, which is an extension on the south side, of course, as we know, and those of you may not know, of the uh, of Northeastern Illinois University, one that was hard won. The Carruthers Center is housed in the Abraham Lincoln, what used to be the Abraham Lincoln Building. It was a, it's a Frank Lloyd Wright design building. That auditorium where Conrad and I and Mama Ife and Muriel and all the folks from Chicago were at on the 31st, of January, kicking off Black History Month in 2020. If y'all want to, you can go on YouTube and see that talk, actually. And I would encourage you to, because you get to see the Chicago community. And of course, Woodson started the association in 1915 at the Wabash Avenue YWCA, YMCA. Conrad Wells' father, Walter, actually left California, took the family to Chicago. That's how they ended up there, because he ended up directing the Black Y. It's very important. Conrad uh, talks about that extensively and we, we miss him every day. But as a he's a powerful ancestor. If you don't know that name, W.O.R.R.I.L.L. -L, Conrad Worrell. It's very important to know that, brother. But um, that night, Conrad reminded us, as he always did, as they always do, whenever we're in the building that you're in, Caleb. I mean, once this plague lifts, that that was the building that Du Bois Paul Robeson, Carter Woodson himself, so many others came in and taught community classes, gave talks, organized. And so when you talk about the next generation, I think it is so important to echo again the Rome Bennett from Mississippi, a Chicagoan, though, adopted Chicagoan right there, which y'all would always remind us. And that is that Black institutions are the foundation for doing the work. So that when you talk about the difference between what we want to do and what we need to do, institutions remind us of what we want to do. Mm -hmm. And so maybe over there on what on Stony Island, across from Miriam, from Mosque Miriam, uh, the brother, you know, our friend, my brother, um, um, Theaster Gates, mm -hmm. you know, the South Stony Island Arts Bank, who, who has Mr. Johnson's library there on the second floor. It seems to me that Chicago, 
as much as any place else that I'm familiar with, you have more places, institutional black control places to do that kind of work. You have as many as anywhere else. And, I'm, and, and in fact, I don't even have to tell you that because you've already expressed to all of us the fact that you know that. And so I, I'll end with this and I want to hear what you have to think about it. What do you have to say about all, anything that I've said so far we have this conversation? When you mentioned the name Jacob Carruthers, who, you know, was our Jegna. I mean, I, you know, I'm very, I'm very grateful to the ancestors and the creator to have been able to apprentice with these cats. So I consider, uh, well, he is. Joseph Ben, Joseph ben Levi is, uh, is my big brother. Jeb Carruthers is a father of mine, intellectual father and cultural father. Mama Ife, you know, the same way. Um, his comrades, uh, meaning Joseph Ben Levi, Roosevelt Roberts, Mae Roberts, Yvonne Jones, all those cats in the KI, I mentioned Muriel Ballard, Charles Carolyn Grantham, all those folks that you will be deeply connected to now. Rosetta Cash, Noel Gardner. I mean, I'm thinking about folks like, um, you know, all these folks, Riketty Wimby. Mm. What? You're already part of communities that will help you continue the work you've already undertaken when you when you were younger and now are only continuing to develop in terms of organizational skills, linking action to thinking. And Jacob Carruthers. Jacob Carruthers went to uh, Sam Houston College, now Houston Tillerson in Austin, Texas. One of his professors was a man named James Farmer Sr. James Farmer Sr. is the dude that. Forrest Whitaker plays in Nate Parker was in the film Denzel and them put together the great debaters. And remember that scene in the great debaters where uh, Forrest Whitaker's character tells his son, we do what we have to do so we can do what we want to do. That's taken from James Farmer senior. And when I tell you James Farmer senior was a professor of Jacob Carruthers. And now you at Jacob Carruthers center for inner city studies with the people who were Jacob Carruthers apprentices. You already know the answer to we do what we have to do to do what we want to do because all you got to do is not only continue in the path that you've already begun but to continue to find what Ayiwe Arma would call the Shimsu, ancient Egyptian would be the companions. You've already found companions brother. You're going to ask that question better than I could ever ask. Yeah, I'm, I'm just in awe because uh, during the summer um, just like seeing how many young people uh, came into the work which is amazing um, and the energy is amazing, um, but also understanding that when young people organize themselves and then they get uh, wisdom from their elders. I think about Ella Baker and what she did oh, with SNCC. She gave, up, she gave up her respectable civil rights career to go work with some young people that Martin Luther King and then wanted to put under them, right? Yeah. So, so understanding that young people have autonomy and that when we tap into that and we connect ourselves to a global consciousness and a global diaspora, it wasn't until when I got to see, oh, it's black folk that look like me in Brazil. And oh, when I went to Soweto, South Africa and seeing those people, right? And, and drawing those connections to North Lawndale, right? Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, and I'm always thinking about just like in this moment, how young people, it's going to be very hard for the generations, my generations and the generations to come after um, to do what you do, right? Um, to get all because they got you. No, to get all of those books. It's going to be easy. Study, even to study is <laughs> because we live in a technology world that like you, young, I asked my peers, when the last time you've read a book? And they were like, the last time I've 
except in classroom, right? Right. So what do you so, do at that moment, Caleb? How do you, how do you then build that bridge once you've asked that and they answered it? What's your next move? Yeah, I, I'm always trying to f- figure out what they like. So I'm trying to figure out how do I engage them around the things that they enjoy because I can talk about policy and foreign policy and and black folk, but right, you need to get real deep and and, and very. Uh, pointed at what, so you like shoes, oh, let's go look at some of these uh, Black inventors, right? Let's go look at how Black people created and and um, uh, hold up Nike and Jordan and, and Adidas, right? You like food, oh, that was my first love, so let's let's go and, and build this urban garden on 51st and- Come on, brother, come and on. In this dirt and, and need, because that's the revolution too, right? The no, revolution no, is, is, is not just- um, sitting back and reading, right? So we have a lot of those scholars too who would sit and read and read and read, but they will never come to the community and put that in that part of what we're talking about. I have have a question question for you. Caleb, you said you started organizing at age 12. Yeah, I started at 12. What was the inspiration? Who got you into that? What sparked you to get out there and organize at 12? Yeah, so Trayvon Martin was murdered. Um, and we talk about uh, his okay. birthday. It was Friday. He would have been yeah. six. Yeah. yeah. So when Trayvon Martin was murdered, I remember we were living on 47th and King, right? Um, we were, my mother was working two jobs. She, uh, to, to get us in on, like those parts, that's nice coming from the west side of uh, Chicago, right? Um, and I remember just a chill going down my body as I listened to the 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 call of Trayvon Martin. And I and I remember the verdict. And I remember that like the ancestors in that room on that card table and that uh that oh, we got to save a lot, right? Yes, um yes sir. They they moved on me and was just like, oh I, I, I knew then that if it was Trayvon, it could be me. Um and it was going to be me if I didn't do anything about it. So then that like radicalized me and woke me up and it shook me up. And then Mike Brown happens. Um, and now I'm, I'm, I'm around some folk and I'm starting to add, okay, where are the young people? Because I see um, 25 year olds and plus um, out there on the streets. And I'm like, wait, 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 hold, hold up. <laughs> Mike, Mike Brown wasn't that old, right? Where are the young people in this? So my first action was um, co-organized by me and my peers um, and it was on Reclaim MLK Day of 2015. Um, and we marched from our school to the Juvenile Temporary Detention Center, um, bordering Douglas Park, which we just got renamed to Frederick Douglas and Anna Marie Douglas Park because oh, of the young people yes, of my old, um, my old elementary school organizing for three years to get that change from- hey, What school, what school you went to? Uh, Village Leadership Academy. Oh, That's Village, the you yeah. so, you the whole way. Yeah, so they have a, a daycare from it takes a village to Village Leadership Academy, um, and then they uh, they prepare you uh, for high school in the right. city. So, so yeah, five years old, y'all did that. Yeah. Oh no, we started. My first trip to Brazil was when I was eight, and I started. Eight? Yeah. I started traveling to Brazil. Traveled to Brazil at eight. We had to learn about the country uh, the whole year. Black resistance. What is the U.S. connections to it? And then at the end of the year, we have to submit a proposal and and for our travel. So you don't get to travel if you ain't studied about it. It's called the World Scholars Program in that. I'm I'm curious because uh, another one of my Jagnus, our Jagnus, who is now an ancestor, who was on the faculty at the Carruthers Center, Mm. heard the name Anderson Thompson. His Mm. picture 
something. Mm-hmm. Andy Thompson used to go to Brazil consistently. I'm wondering if the founders of the academy were not tied to, to man, this is yeah, it's it's deep. And and us and I and I think the ancestors and the universe and all of our everything, because I feel like we're not just working to earn the respect of our elders and our ancestors, but we're also working to earn the respect of future generations. Oh, no question. Right. When when they when we're elders, when I'm an elder and the young folks say, what did you do about climate change? What did yeah. you do about uh, what did you do about economic justice? What did you do about uh, protecting and defending black women and girls and trans folk, right? All of these nuances within our own communities and the conversations we don't want to have. Um, we're going to have to look them in the eyes and say, we fought like hell or we sat by and right. we, let, we let this system run amok over us. So I really appreciate you. No, I pre- brother, listen, you, you listen, I'm sure I speak for everybody who's in this room right now. When I tell you, you ins- not just inspire, you're instructing us, brother. Because this this is the dream. When people say, well, shirts, I'm my ancestors' wildest dreams. No, you could also be your ancestors' wildest nightmares. Come on. <laughs> you, are, you, are, you are showing us how, in fact, there is a phrase uh, in ancient Egyptian. And ask Ben Levi about, um, ben Levi about uh, teaching about Africa. I don't know if he's talked about that. Uh, Brother Kamal Rashid, who's also a comedian. Mm. They, they, do, they do teacher education. See, you got to yeah. be in there helping with Brother, you in the right place. But um, I mean, cause, 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 cause we need you because you're already we. You're already in it. I um, I'm mean, just as you were talking about uh, Trayvon Martin, and of course, you know, uh, Mike Brown. So I assume then you were part of that crew that was in the street behind Laquan McDonald. Yeah, and Rakia Boyd, oh, and, like um, say our name campaign. Yes. Uh, I was I was 13 with Black Youth Project 100, Black Lives oh, Matter. You want no question. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I we were down there, and yeah. So y'all messing them people Christmas shopping, man. What's wrong with you? You know, Chicago, the hawk be out. I know. <laughs> and I and I talk about the teacher strikes that's happening right yeah, now. About the teacher strike. I mean, I've been watching some of that from a yeah. Teacher. Um, so Chicago teachers are fighting to have a help. So the CPS, Chicago Public Schools, wants teachers back in classrooms. Well, I saw y'all um, back up Lori Lightfoot on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We ain't even gonna talk about her and how 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 yeah, like that's black right. folk don't like uh Lori Lightfoot folk as a black poor woman but um it's interesting to see how even black people are a part of these institutions that are harming us right so um think about uh so the cps ceo that title chief executive officer but also the banking system of education come on on. um, is janet jackson we also have barbara bird baden right so like these black women who are also were educators, some of them, um, who then flip once they have power and yeah. are using against it. So they want, they want teachers in there without ventilation. They want teachers in there without uh, 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 having access to the vaccine. They want, right? Um, so CTU, you know they don't play. They no. say, no, no, no. We go, no. if we're going to strike, we're going to strike. Um, right. And Chicago is striking city, uh, city, so you know um, yeah. once folks organize. So, yeah, they're doing the work now. They're going back and forth. We had Mayor Lightfoot on Fox News um, out of all publications talking about how she cares about young black people and they're from where she's from and all of that. But one come and sit down with a young black person if um, if we paid her to. Um, so you're doing the work. You, you, but you're showing the power of organization. And as an organizer and as a veteran organizer, but man, you know better than I do in many ways. 
when you have the numbers, you can make that happen. I mean, and I think about the fact, like I said, I'm thinking about the people in Chicago I knew and um, and know. You know, I remember Barbara Sizemore. Mm-hmm. There was a generation of black educators. In fact, uh, Margaret Burroughs, who founded the DuSable, she and her husband Charles. Mm-hmm. You know, they were at, a, was it Windows House, house? right? Yeah, 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 at the house, man. No, see, you know what it is. See, look, this is what, hey, hey y'all, understand. Wisdom is not a function of age when you are a deep studier like this brother right here. This brother we had, we we all watching and hearing right now, brother Caleb, Caleb man, uh, make sure you put your information in the chat because there's some people, man, in addition to everybody else you already linked to. Uh, like I said, my friend Kim Delaney, who's at Chicago State, she's also at the DuSable over education. Brother, we need you. Sir. We need you, brother, because you are army by yourself. Y'all, me. y'all don't need me. Yeah. Can I believe y'all. this? Thank you so much. Hear me. You must have got some kind of. It, I do have some kind of. So I'm going to receive that. I'm going to receive that. Yeah. That, that yeah. is obedience to the spirit, right? Um, oh. This, You know, as I'm listening to Caleb, I'm seeing in the in the comments, you know, it's, we want to hold you up as special. But I want to say this, that there are millions of Caleb's in our community. Unfortunately, yeah. the media will only pull out one or two. And Amanda Gorman is brilliant. But there are a million Ma- Amanda Gormans. We're black. Million. Millions. And I've been saying this for the last six years. This generation is the one that's going to save us. This generation, the 18, 19, 16-year-olds, those are the ones that are literally in the street. This is not unusual, what you're hearing coming out of this man's mouth. And... Again, it's random. Not really. Well, no, it's it's a real alchemy to it. I didn't know Caleb. I it's didn't know. Alchemy. I'm just like, all right, here's the link. Come in before 1 30 and we put you on. I don't know where you're from. I don't know what your background is. I'm not doing any research. And this is why I know that he's not unusual. How about this? Why I know that there are a lot. And if you are living in a community and you don't see a Caleb in your community, yeah, what yeah. are you going to foster that? Yeah. What's yeah. happening? What's happening in your schools to not produce this? Well, he's he came out of black institution. We heard it then we came. With so black women at the center of it. My God, brother. And and <laughs> when I went back into white institutions, they couldn't tell me nothing, right? So no I met a college prep school, one of the best in the uh, state, just being like, no, the, you got to cut out of Abraham Lincoln in the U.S. history. The, I'm going to tell you about this every single day. You got the don't trade on me flag in the back. OK, let's let's talk about it. So um, also just understanding that, like, we are we need to shape that, too, that, like, the education system is not education, it's schooling, right? Like, it's, oh, it's you different my man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, so I, I'm thank you. I'm thankful for the education no, y'all giving us, um, Mama Hunter. You you touching the generations you don't even know that coming, right? So um, uh, this platform is the hottest thing on YouTube and on the internet, um, and um, I'm interested in building with y'all of how we could get young people um, into this space. I, I send my links to my folk and my peers, um, but making sure that uh, young people are at the center and the core of this because they're the ones that are going to uh, continue the evolution in the process. We'll be, really we'll be teaching a course in our new platform, Kate. I am yeah. not you go. You, you about that. That's right. That's right. Thank right. you so much. I love you. Oh Talk my God. You, love, much love. Yeah. Tell my man, Yosef, I'll be rapping with him. <laughs> uh, can I believe that? I mean, I can. I keep saying it like you keep saying. No. Yes. Every week. Every week. Wow. Uh, I, I'm speechless. 
I'm just going to say that. This is what it looks like when you raise them up. Oh, no, no. It's very true, Karen. You know, and maybe we talk about that another time. Caleb kind of previewed it. Chicago, Detroit, New York, Newark, Philadelphia, L.A., Oakland, uh, Seattle. You can you there's probably not Jackson, Mississippi, Atlanta. You can't really name a city in this country, in the United States anyway. Well, I say this country because people out over the world watching. For that matter, London, as we heard last week, Salvador Bahia, absolutely. Look up a cat, Abdijas dos Nascimento, out of uh, out of Bahia, Salvador Bahia. Wherever black people have clustered, there have been black people who built institutions to educate our children. The, the, the system that produces the Caleb's is a system that has a very specific history. And we talk about this another time. I know we, we kind of coming up against it. So um, these are black women and men. When you when you see a brother like that, I'm looking at him and I'm saying, I see Hakeem Abudi and Safisha. I see the Institute of Positive Education that came out of the 60s and the Black Power Movement in Chicago. I'm seeing Abner Joan Brown. I'm seeing Conrad World. I'm seeing Barbara Sizemore, who they ran out of D.C. as the superintendent because she was going to transform the whole damn thing. And she went back to Chicago and continued that work. That young brother right there is what Lerone Bennett is talking about. He was produced. He was produced by institution builders. And so, like you said, he didn't go into the white institution to destroy the white institution. He went in there to say, OK, what can I use out of this? And you're going to get up off me. And I'm going to show this child right here that's sitting trying to figure out what's going on in her life, what it looks like. And then after class, she'll come to me and say, you know, I like what you and then will come see me on the weekend. That building that Caleb is affiliated with now, the Carruthers building, they had something in there called the Communiversity. Mm. Oh, they had cats like Bob Rhodes, who I knew was uh, made transition. He was at Ohio University for years. These cats, man, when I look now at the people writing and talking about black stuff, if they're not coming out of black institutions, maybe something they have to say is useful. But if you're not connected to black institutions, Caleb then told y'all. <laughs> told y'all, you're not building. That that literally that building, um, uh, Ivor Carruthers with the uh, now with the Sam and DeWitt Proctor Institute. In fact, when we connect to him, all that Brazil stuff, Mama Ivor and South Africa, Jeremiah Wright, who the last time I was there in that building that night, Jeremiah Wright came out. In fact, I got a picture of me, him, and Conrad. That's one of the last picture Conrad took on the earth was me and Jeremiah Wright, Conrad, Jeremiah Wright in the middle. South Africa all day long, those connections. This but is the importance of traveling and seeing oh, yourself in other places. This young man traveling at eight, some of y'all ain't never been off your block, out your neighborhood, out your community. And you don't, the world is so tiny as it relates to black people. We see ourselves in so many places when we get out there. So I can't wait for this plague to be over. Yes. Trips to take, Doc. We got trips to take. Oh, no question. Well, in between, in, in between, if they keep coming up like this, we're gonna be in some of these places before we physically get there. They're gonna come drop in, and y'all come on into the uh, to the conversation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Please. Listen. Thank you. Next week, 1876, 1776. The yes. 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 Oh, okay. we've been holding off on it after, like Anna Hedgeman. We're gonna get to it. Right. It's, it's, it's hot February. It's hot. What we call it. Hot, hot girl, hot boy, February. I guess we could just rename. We've taken off. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. And y'all pray to uh, keep us healthy so that we keep doing this too because that's yes. important. All yeah. right. I'm going to say that. All right. Love you, bro. You too. Love you too, sis. Thank you all, everyone. Oh, thumbs up, like, share. Yeah, please, uh, please. Donica's daddy. Thank Ooh. you for being and the team and Renee and all the folks. Uh, yeah. Y'all are in the chat making sure everybody stays on message.